Welcome, everyone, to the fourth episode of SFD's series on Vietnam, the First Indochina War. This episode ran long, but I got it done on time, so rather than splitting it up into multiple shows like I have in the past, I just let it run, and you're getting a show that tops 180 minutes this time around. That's really my bag as far as listening to podcasts goes, so no apologies from me there. Last time I'll say this on a history show at least, the total intro time is 3 minutes, so set your players for 180 seconds if you're tired of them and it'll get you there. Get at me on Twitter, I'm John M. Coombs, find us on Facebook, share these shows man because the numbers are not going up enough, or up at all as of late. One other note here at the beginning, there is a French general named Leclerc, whose name I pronounce Leclerc every single time I say it in this episode. Apologies about that, and you'll get to hear the audio clip that made me realize that I was doing it all wrong about two-thirds of the way through this thing. Alright, we're talking about Saigon, Hanoi, Danang, and Hue. We're talking about a war brewing in Vietnam. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So let's talk about geography again here. It's always tough to wrap your head around it when you hear it on tape versus when you see it in front of you, but I've got my big wall map up and discount laminated now to draw on. So hopefully we can make things clearer, and there will, as always, be maps in the show notes. As Bernard Fall writes, Vietnamese often describe their country as a carrying pole, with a rice basket on either end. The pole is Anam, and it occupies fully two-thirds of Vietnam's north-south stretch. On the western, leftward side of this long, thin strip of land is the chain Anamatique, or the Anamite Cordillera, from the Laotian highlands near Than Hoa in the north all the way nearly to Saigon in the south. The arable part of Anam is even thinner, literally a short walk between the ocean and the mountainous foothills. The lower half of Anam, that is the southern half, is nearly all mountains, what both the French and later the Americans would refer to as the Central Highlands. The southern of the two rice baskets, what we've called Cochin, China, is entirely taken up by the Mekong Delta in the north and the Kamau Peninsula covered in deltas and swamps to the south. 
Cochin China, being all lowland, was easier for the French and the Americans to control. But just to the left or west of Saigon was the Plain of Reeds, and the Viet Minh could hide there nearly as easily as in the highlands. Up north in Tonkin, which looks a bit like a piece of popcorn in profile, the center is taken up by the Red River Delta. The river system extends from the coast on the bottom right or the southeast, up and to the left in the northwest, to the Chinese border. But while the delta occupies nearly all of the Tonkinese coast, it narrows to one tiny valley at Lao Cai at the Chinese border. Around the delta, the mountains close in on all sides, giving any Viet Minh places to hide nearly all the way to Hanoi, which is right in the center of Tonkin and about halfway up the Red River Delta. To the left or west of Tonkin and the northern half of Annam is Laos. Laos mirrors the half of Vietnam that it sits beside almost perfectly. The whole northern flare, also looking like popcorn, is highlands, except for a tiny river delta that terminates at the Laotian capital, Vientiane, at the bottom of that popcorn piece. The Laos was all mountains and highlands, made it an excellent place for Viet Minh fighters to escape to, for the North Vietnamese to eventually build the Ho Chi Minh Trail through, and is also what made it such an attractive target to administration after administration in D.C. The lower southern half of Laos sits across the Annamite Cordillera opposite from Annam, with arable rice lands extending west to the border with Thailand. Down even further south, the lower half of Annam and then Cochin China curl around Cambodia, cradling that country as if it were in the crook of a Vietnamese arm. Cambodia, in contrast to Laos, is almost entirely lowland, although where it touches Annam, it includes small parts of the central highlands, making those border areas likewise excellent places of escape and retreat for Viet Minh troops through both of the wars. As Bernard Fall writes at the beginning of his book Two Vietnams, quote, Thus, Vietnam can be divided into eight natural regions, three low-lying plains, three mountain areas, and two that fall between the other two categories in altitude and configuration. 1. The Red River and Mekong Deltas and the smaller Central Vietnamese Deltas. 2. The Annamite Cordillera, the Thai Hill area of northwestern Tonkin, and the northeastern Tonkin Mountain area, where the Viet Minh established their bases in the 1940s. And 3. The North Vietnamese Midlands, which forms a wedge of terraced hills and soft-shouldered mountains to the north of the Red River Delta. And finally, the vast southern mountain plateau, still referred to its French initials PMS, which covers two-thirds of all Vietnam south of the 17th parallel, which includes some of the central highlands. Unquote. The Vietnamese population of the country, as opposed to the unintegrated mountain tribes, crowded and crowds into the farmable lowlands, leaving the highlands nearly uninhabited except for those mountain tribes. As Fall writes, quote, the results in terms of human geography are startling. Quote, Whereas in the United States, an average of 60 persons lives on a square mile of land, the average in the Red River Delta is 1,256, reaching in Nam Dinh province the fantastic figure of 3,800 inhabitants to the square mile. While in the PMS, that is the Central Highlands, often fewer than five inhabitants can be found per square mile, the neighboring Central Vietnamese Delta of Binh Dinh has an average of 1,380 to the square mile. In the open plains of the fertile Mekong Delta, the population figure is far less heavy. Few areas reach a figure of 500 to the square mile, and many provinces have about 260. Thus, of Vietnam's 30.5 million inhabitants in 1962, which is a bit later than we're talking about right now, close to 29 million live on about 20% of the national territory, while the remaining 1.5 million roam, and the term can be applied literally since many of them are at least semi-nomads, over more than 100,000 square miles of plateau and mountain areas. 
In American terms, this would mean that 175 million Americans were settled between the eastern seaboard and the Appalachians, while another 8 million would have the rest of the country, all the way to the Pacific Ocean, to themselves. Unquote. Continuing about culture, Fall writes, quote, The various Chinese occupations also left a profound physical imprint upon the Vietnamese, while in the deep south of the country, intermarriage with the Cambodian inhabitants produced yet a different ethnic strain. The mountaineers who were pushed back into the hills have held onto their original culture to this day. In the north, the Thai, Muang, and Mio dominate the whole backcountry with their high cultural level, in many cases equal to that of the lowland Vietnamese, makes them a political factor that cannot be ignored. In the south, the more primitive tribes of the PMS, or the Central Highlands, inaccurately called Moi, savages, have also maintained their elaborate tribal and social structure against heavy odds. Although their exact numbers are not known, spot censuses have shown that there may be as many as one million southern mountaineers living in the Central Highlands area. For the northern mountain areas, the 1960 census gives a figure of 2,600,000 mountaineers, unquote. We're just going to keep using fall here for a second. So, quote, A third physical reality that is as important as the unequal distribution of Vietnam's population and culture is the unequal distribution of its mineral and agricultural wealth. Accidents of climate and geology make the two zones of Vietnam, the north and the south, not economic rivals, but in normal times, perfect complements to one another. The northern zone possesses all the mineral wealth necessary, and in economically sufficient and accessible quantities, for a viable light and medium industrial base. The south has an output of highly diversified agricultural products, more than adequate to meet the demands of the interior market and supply cash exports. There is enough cheap high-grade anthracite and coal in the north to solve all of Vietnam's industrial fuel problems and leave a comfortable margin for economically competitive exports. And in South Vietnam, rice, rubber, spices, and textiles could likewise take care of the needs of the whole population and still leave highly valued export surpluses, unquote. All of this, everything I've been quoting from fall, comes out meaning two different things. First, that any divisions of the country, either at the 17th parallel in Annam or in the south, shearing off Cochin China from the rest of Vietnam, which the French in this period would like to have done, destroy that balance. Cochin China and the Saigon area have all the rice and none of the minerals. The reverse is true of Tonkin and Annam. And the second point is that control of Vietnam rests with control of the two river deltas, the Red in the north and the Mekong in the south. That's just where the rice is. But given that more wild areas, from the plain of reeds to the west of Saigon in the south, to the central highlands, to the mountains and highlands that surround the Red River Delta in the north, control of those deltas would depend to some extent on control of the highlands. And the control of the highlands would likewise necessarily depend on some degree of control or cooperation with the Montagnier tribes, the unintegrated other ethnic groups of the mountainous areas. Now, there's one other thing I want to read you from Fall's other book, Last Reflections on a War, about geography and demography, and this one's about rice, because it gives us more insight into Vietnamese village life and the political and sociological situation on the ground in the deltas. First is something that might not be obvious to us now, with China gunning to be the world's largest economy and India not all that far behind. For most of human history and up to the 1970s or later, the countries of Southeast Asia, including Thailand and Indochina, were the only Asian nations who produced annual rice surpluses. China, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Nepal, and Laos, remember that it's almost all highlands but the big river deltas of Vietnam, 
all had massive rice deficits, meaning that control of Southeast Asia, though it might not have seemed important to men in Washington at the time, meant much more than the victory of communism or capitalism. It meant control of the rice crop in a famine-plagued part of the world. Really long one now, quote, Rice planting is more than an economic activity. It is a way of life, a whole weltanschung in itself. First of all, it is probably the most backbreaking normal human activity. Each hectare, which for my American audience is a square with 100 meters on a side, it's 10,000 square meters or about 2.6 acres, of rice field requires 10,000 tons of water, which, except for the few areas where irrigation systems are available, must be pumped or scooped by various primitive means. Water wheels worked by hand or with bicycle pedals, wicker baskets or mere pails, carried thousands of times uphill in those areas of Asia where rice is grown on terraces along the slopes of steep mountains. In almost all areas of monsoon Asia, two rice crops a year are produced to feed a continent whose relatively small, fertile areas are fantastically overcrowded. In a few areas, such as Taibin province in North Vietnam, three rice crops a year have been grown. In the Far East, rice is grown in small seedbeds for up to two months and then replanted, stalk by stalk, into deeply irrigated fields which have previously been plowed with the help of water buffalo. To imagine the incredibly backbreaking quality of rice planting, one must imagine what it would mean to plant a wheat field stalk by stalk in 95 degree heat while standing in muddy water up to one's knees for 10 hours at a time. It takes all the human manpower the family or even the whole village can muster to do the job in the short span of time when replanting must be done. If too much rain produces floods, the seedlings cannot be planted in time. If there is a drought before the seedlings have taken hold, the crop will die. Like all peasants throughout the world, the rice farmer lives in deep symbiosis with nature, and the exacting nature of rice farming ties him closely to his neighbors. The big irrigation dikes must be maintained collectively and are the responsibility of whole villages or even districts. No one can be allowed to shirk his duty in maintaining them. I recall a deeply moving sight during the French-Indo-Chinese War in 1953, which is still a couple of years before we're talking about right now when a sudden flood in the Red River Delta washed out a major irrigation dam. The whole population of the area, perhaps tens of thousands of people, was seen swarming over the dike, working busily at reinforcing it. On one side of the dike there were French sentries protecting the working farmers. On the other side, one could see the flat helmets and olive green uniforms of Vietnam's People's Army patrols. Neither side fired on the other. There was a war on, but the protection of the rice crop took precedence over it. The collectiveness of rice farming also extends to its other aspects and becomes embedded in the moors and religions of Southeast Asia. Josue de Castro, the great Brazilian economist and former chairman of the Executive Council of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, points out in his magistral study, The Geography of Hunger, how Confucianism and ancestor worship are in fact necessary adjuncts to the economics of rice farming. Quoting now from that guy, quote, The doctrines of Confucius would not have penetrated and taken such deep root in the soul of the Chinese people if his precepts of love for one's family and worship of one's ancestors had not coincided with the people's economic interests, the need for hands to grow food, thus fending off the chronic hunger, and the need for hands to help in the terrible hours of famine have built a whole complex social structure favorable to a high birth rate. The Chinese must have an ample excess of sons, so that after they have been cut down by disease, plague, famine, and war, there will still be some left to work the soil and worship the name of his ancestors, unquote, and unquote. Okay, yeah, sorry about how long that was, but 
The absolute necessity of maximizing rice crops, which we were just hearing about, meant that as Vietnam expanded in the period we were talking about in the first show, every inch of farmable land, first in the eastern strip of Annam beside the mountains, and then later in the Mekong Delta in Cochin, China, every inch of farmable land was immediately colonized by incoming ethnic Vietnamese. The Choms of Champa, the Hmong, all the various Montagnard tribes got pushed out of the lowlands, and those lowlands filled to the absolute brim with Vietnamese villages. The typical village was surrounded by a wall of bamboo, making it totally impenetrable to vision until you got inside, and giving it a sense, as Fall and Paul Muse and Francis Fitzgerald continually point out, of autonomy and separation from the outside world. Each village was surrounded by its own flooded rice paddies, with their dikes making up the only method of dry travel from one place to another. The thickness, the density of those villages in the deltas meant that the Viet Minh always had one more place to retreat to, one more place in which they'd look at home, while each new village was a whole host of new relationships and headmen and village elders for a given force of French or American soldiers to try to parse. Any approach to a village had to move quickly and very visibly along the dikes, while any attempted stealth bogged down in the paddies and probably wasn't too successful in any case, with the Vietnamese being so intimately familiar with who should be in the fields and how they ought to look. And likewise, the impact of any attack on a village by the French or the Americans was by necessity immense. Tanks or armored carriers or even just boots treading through those fields destroyed days or weeks or months of backbreaking labor, endangered the well-being of the whole village, and in the end, would nearly always do more to turn the villagers towards the Viet Minh than the given foreign force. Add in napalm and bombings and the destruction of dikes, and it all adds up to an environment in which any fighting at all was practically designed to lose hearts and minds. Finally, we have to keep in mind that while the village system of Tonkin and Annam was literally thousands of years old, in Cochin, China, it was barely hundreds, if that and that the colonization of the Mekong Delta by the Vietnamese was still going on when the French arrived in force in the 1880s, meaning that village histories, the village system, and people's sense of themselves as part of a village nation were all much weaker in the south than in the center and north. On over to the White House, and it came back with the very tight round hand of Franklin Roosevelt, I want no French returned to Indochina. FDR. <clears throat> And uh, I remember the excitement I felt that this was a, the, probably the first clear uh, U.S. policy toward a Southeast Asian state. All right, I've got one last section here before we jump back into history, but I think it's important and I want to talk just for a bit about the structure and government of village life and the way that it would play into the French and American wars, not to mention the success of the Viet Minh and communism in Vietnam in general. As Paul Muse writes, quote, The typical village of Vietnam is enclosed within a thick wall of bamboo and thorny plants. The villagers used to live behind a kind of screen of bamboo, or perhaps it was more like living within the magic ring of a fairy tale, unquote. All of this physical separation of the villages behind their dikes in bamboo and the deltas reinforced the notion or the bone-deep feeling of the village as a unit, over and against both the empire, that is the ancient Vietnamese empire, and the individual himself. People paid taxes to the imperial court at Hue as a village, in kind. And while the court had some role in regulating regional relationships, and the village provided soldiers to the court, the village was self-sufficient, autonomous, and integrated as a single, coordinated community. Village autarky was so strong, in fact, that the only merchants operating trade within the country and exporting rice without it were Chinese. 
This was largely true up even until the American arrival, with large expatriate Chinese communities running trade out of Haiphong and Cholan into the 1960s. Before the arrival of the French, villages were run by a kind of council, but as Muse writes, the idea wasn't a popular vote that resulted in a council representing a popular voice. Rather, the council was meant to be a reflection of the realities of village life. Literary accomplishments, like learning Chinese and being versed in poetry and Confucian texts, and to a much smaller extent, wealth, were what got you on the council. From Muse, quote, Historically, the chief danger to such a system, that is the council system, is that a parasitic aristocracy could establish itself by annexing the political offices and accumulating great estates, with real workers falling to the level of serfs, as in other agricultural countries. But this could not happen in Vietnam because the emperor never granted permanent titles. The entailed estates were always ritualistic and symbolic, bound to the family altar. As for the grades in the administrative bureaucracy, or mandarinate, as it was called by the Europeans, which formed the true hierarchy of the country, they were open to public competition, and thus theoretically accessible to everyone. The cities were very slightly developed, and commercial privileges had been practically monopolized by the Chinese, discouraging the accumulation of large urban fortunes, which were very vulnerable in any case to reprisal and confiscation by the central power. In the villages, as elsewhere, custom did not favor large landholding. The land was split up into parcels, often very small, at least in the rice-growing areas, which are the heart of the country. To accumulate even a modest estate was the work of a lifetime, and no family could stay at the top in one of the little villages for very long. Prestige was expensive. Its obligations served as an economic leveler, since society gauged prestige by the fulfillment of those obligations. Parties, banquets, and subscriptions were ways for the rest of the people in the community to share the wealth of whoever had reached social eminence. A popular proverb from China summarized the situation. Nobody stays rich for three generations. Nobody stays poor for three generations either. It is characteristic of village life that the proverb has meaning only when nobody is understood to mean no family. The individual is but a momentary phenomenon, unquote. The single most devastating blow that the French ever dealt to this ancient, integrated way of village life was the introduction of cash taxation at the beginning of their colonial period. Rather than treating the village as a whole, which in turn encouraged the village to act and think of itself as a whole, which is the way it had worked during the entire imperial period, the French looked at each person's individual wealth and charged them some percentage, the way we pay taxes now, to be paid not in rice or livestock or labor, but in piasters, the new colonial currency. The need to pay money taxes created the corresponding need to sell crop and livestock and eventually land for money, and the growth of a small loan industry in Vietnam. What resulted from that, incredibly quickly, was that the minor wealthy of the country became major landlords, while a whole class of what Muse over and over again calls usurious moneylenders grew up in the cities. To make all that even plainer, imagine a small farmer towards the end of the 19th century in Vietnam. All of his life, he's contributed whatever share of his rice crop the village council deemed, given the size of his plot and how well the planting and harvest went that year, to the collective pot of taxes that the village sent on to the court at Hue. Once the French arrive, rather than contributing what his village council decides, and contributing it in kind, that is in rice, the farmer now has to get a certain arbitrary amount of cash to the French. To get cash, he has to find a way to sell his rice for cash, and to do it individually rather than as part of the village, something that he's never had to do before. That arbitrary amount of cash tax might vary somewhat with his own wealth and with the harvest, but what it also does is expose this rice farmer to the global rice market. 
So while one year a farmer might only have to sell 5% of his total harvest to make up the 10 piasters he needs to pay in tax, if the next year the rice harvest is good worldwide and the price of rice drops, this farmer might end up having to sell 80% of his crop to make the same 10 piasters. If he can't meet that obligation one year, he then turns to the moneylenders in Saigon or Hanoi or Hue, and he takes out a loan to pay his taxes. Every year thereafter, he has to sell even more of his harvest to meet both his debts and his taxes. Maybe he has to take out more loans to buy rice to feed his family, since he had to sell the original rice at harvest to feed the French. Eventually, that small farmer is forced to sell everything else, his water buffalo, his tools, and his land, to pay off his debts and to pay off the colonial government. The land ends up with some large landholder in his village, and the peasant either becomes a serf or heads to the cities or the southern plantations to become a wage laborer. So, very quickly, the new French tax system took these highly integrated, nearly egalitarian villages of old and turned them into a more European feudal situation, where big men snapped up most of the land and now used their power and village offices to reinforce their de facto aristocracy. Now, the French also worked through their governments and their puppet governments to regulate village life more and more directly, mandating different kinds of councils and going as far, in some cases, as appointing village leaders directly, something that the Americans would do on a massive scale later on. All of which destroyed the sense of the village as a unit apart from the state and created the sense of the villager as citizen, part of the nation first and the village second, in contrast to thousands of years of history beforehand. The Tonkinese villages held under their old structures by the skin of their teeth, although they too felt the new pain of drastic economic inequality. While in the south, in Cochin, China, the village system fell apart almost entirely, with the growth of huge absentee landlords and expansive wage labor plantations. Thus, says Muse, quote, the Confucian balance between the ritualistic non-interfering state and the autarkic village was brought to ruin, or nearly so, without anything in sight to replace it, unquote. What Muse says is that this destruction of both village life and the relationship of the villager to the Confucian state resulted in a total political disordering of the country, and that the French never presented a model to replace what had gone before. What he means is that while the French liberated the villager from the anonymous collectivity of the village, the French didn't put into place the educational or economic structures to make him part of a new, modern, forward-looking, and outward-looking state. Now, a great example of that is something we just talked about. The villager was exposed to the vicissitudes of the world rice market, but the French hadn't put in place either the education to contextualize that exposure, or economic structures to allow the villager to contend with that exposure. The villager in general still grew up steeped in Confucian values and village traditions and structures, but then had to face a world of taxation and anime for which they totally failed to prepare him. It was a cultural and political shock. You could draw small, small comparisons to our present moment in the U.S. My generation of young people were told that if we just followed the rules of the past, going to college, taking out loans, we'd be part of a well-paid, successful workforce like our parents. None of that was true, especially after the crash of 2008. And I think a lot of the anime and the turn to rightist fascist politics is the result of this clash of what we were educated for and what the world actually is. And just like for us now, there was no way to go back to the previous model in Vietnam. We can't just return to the 1950s and the days of good auto jobs, and the Vietnamese couldn't close down the country and shut out the world like it had before the 1700s. The old holistic model of the Confucian state, 
one in which the emperor technically owned all the land, but did most of his governing by elaborate mystical rituals in Hue, one in which the peasants technically owned total allegiance to the court, but almost never had any contact with it except for yearly collective taxes, and one in which technical training for leadership in the village, or imperial bureaucracy, meant learning to read and produce Chinese poetry. That model died with French colonization. No return to it was possible, and the only way forward was to either somehow convert the Vietnamese into Europeans wholesale, or to come up with some equally holistic new model of a state. It's maybe to the Vietnamese's credit that they turned out freedom fighters rather than fascists, the way that we're starting to do now, but what the French and then the Americans had on their hands for decades and decades was a population without a political model to follow. The French, their local allies, the Americans and theirs, never really came up with an answer to this question, except briefly under Diem in the late 1950s. The Viet Minh, however, did. As Paul Muse writes in Sociology of a War, quote, But how could any revolutionary leadership adapt itself to the traditionalist expectations of the peasants, or rather adapt itself with the effectiveness required to lead the peasants into the modern world, where the politics of mass mobilization and mass participation in political demonstrations and military operations have become the norm? The answer has been found in the traditional concept of virtue, which is the sign that a prevailing regime enjoys the mandate of heaven, enjoys legitimacy in traditionalist terms. Proof that a revolutionary regime has the mandate of heaven is the emergence of a new political system that is a complete replacement of the preceding doctrines, institutions, and men in power, and that shows itself to be in complete command of society. Of course, such a stiff test of legitimacy merely indicates that the Vietnamese expect there to be little uncertainty about an insurgent's capacity to govern before there is popular recognition of his being endowed with the mandate of heaven. Since few competitors can fulfill these criteria all at once, the Vietnamese have usually taken a wait-and-see attitude towards challengers of the prevailing order. But, also being gamblers at heart, the Vietnamese have known that they cannot wait too long, Otherwise, they may lose their chance to be identified with the winning side. In the critical task of making their choice, they look for a sign or an intimation of legitimacy, and the Vietnamese call that sign virtue. Unquote. Bernard Fall talks about the potential of the Viet Minh to create this total replacement of the previous state in his book Two Vietnams. First, he quotes a French army study on the subject of Viet Minh organization, quote, end quote, the Lien Viet, the organization of Viet Minh subsidiary groups, included youth groups, groups for mothers, farmers, workers, resistant Catholics, war veterans, etc. It could just as well have included associations of flute players or bicycle racers. The important point was that no one escaped regimentation, and that the normal territorial hierarchy was this complemented by another which watched the former, and was in turn watched by it. Both of them being watched in turn from the outside, and inside by the security services and the party. The individual caught in the fine mesh of such a net has no chance whatever of preserving his independence, unquote, and unquote. It was a new system, and Fall, who at some points seems very sympathetic to the Viet Minh and at other points viscerally repulsed by communism, he talks about it as a system of overlapping surveillance. But what it was also, or instead, was a new holistic way of merging government, culture, and politics. To us, it says one-party state, but to the villagers, the Viet Minh's different structures— the top structure of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, the regional structures of the Viet Minh's party and military organization, and the cultural and village structures that organized people along the lines of social interests or hobbies, it was a new organic community into which they could slot themselves, and which didn't replicate but echoed the Confucian structures of old. 
Bernard Fall also mentions that the Viet Minh were sensitive to the concerns of locality. Successive French and American puppet governments constantly reorganized and renamed provinces and villages. The Viet Minh, by contrast, and it might seem like a small thing to us, changed no names and moved only two provincial boundaries only slightly, in decades of rule, doing as little as possible to disrupt the rice cycle and village life. The Viet Minh had been reorganizing the villages, the countryside, and the cities since the early 1940s. As they developed their guerrilla groupings and fought against the French and the Japanese, and then after the founding of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam by Ho Chi Minh, the Viet Minh continued to integrate the country into this new structure, from village councils into district councils into province councils, and eventually all the way up into the person of Ho Chi Minh. This was a direct replacement of the old village councils and the relationship of those councils to the Emperor at Hue, and it was one which was made to be immune from the change that the old councils had gone through, with wealthy villagers using their position to expropriate property from the poor. What's interesting to note at this point too, and this is the very last thing I promise before we get back to history, is that once the Viet Minh secured independence in 1945, like we just mentioned, at the end of the last episode, the result wasn't to turn the whole population towards them and against the French, but to effect a shift in attitudes. The French had been a kind of interregnum in the Mandate of Heaven. To the peasants, clearly the French were more powerful than the Vietnamese emperors, so the French had, for the moment, the right to rule. But after their defeat by the Japanese and the Declaration of Independence, the peasants understood, the villagers understood that interregnum to have come to an end. And especially if the French weren't offering a new holistic model the way that the Viet Minh were, there was no way that they would be allowed back the way that they had more or less been allowed in in the 1880s. That very much didn't mean, though, that they couldn't continue to be friends of the Vietnamese, with all the colonial abuses immediately turned into bygones. As Muse says, quote, Perhaps the following story can best illustrate this point, the point that I was just talking about. One day in the era before World War II, a mature and experienced Vietnamese who knew the French well commented to me on the devotion with which Frenchmen were carrying out their duties in the colonial administration. I knew that several Frenchmen, on their deaths or retirement, had been made patron spirits by rural people, that is, the patron spirit of their altar or village altar. But why, he asked me, do you want to have authority over us at any price? What are you so impatient about? Your karma had you born in the West. Yet you love this country of Vietnam, and you choose to live here rather than in your own. Such devotion has great meaning. Just wait, and you can be sure that you shall be reborn here. At that time, it will be natural and consistent with the will of heaven for you to be entrusted with the highest duties of the land. But by acting as if you were in a hurry, you really prove that you're still Westerners." Unquote. Battleship Missouri, 53,000-ton flagship of Admiral Halsey's Third Fleet, becomes the scene of an unforgettable ceremony marking the complete and formal surrender of Japan. In the Bay of Tokyo itself, the United States destroyer Buchanan comes alongside, bringing representatives of the Allied powers to witness the final capitulation. General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Allied Commander for the Occupation of Japan, boards the Missouri. Fleet Admiral Nimitz, Pacific Fleet Commander, and Admiral Halsey welcome MacArthur and his Chief of Staff, General Sutherland, aboard. Admiral Nimitz escorts General MacArthur to the Missouri's veranda deck, where the 20-minute ceremony is to take place. 
It is Sunday, September 2nd, 1945. So let's get back on track with where we were the last time around. Ho Chi Minh and his Viet Minh are in control of a new provisional government of Vietnam, which declares the country's independence from France on the 2nd of September 1945. The war in the Pacific has just ended, and at the conference in Potsdam in July, the Truman administration agreed to have the Chinese and the British jointly occupy Indochina, disarming the surrendered Japanese as they go. The British take the southern half, the Chinese the north. Truman also agreed at Potsdam to allow the French back into the country, and the British begin facilitating that as soon as they touch beach. The Viet Minh administration has control over Tonkin and Annam, Hanoi and Hue. They enjoy great popularity, but they're as fragile as any government that's only a couple of weeks old is wont to be. Forgetting the French entirely, they've got to put their people in place in what remains of the French colonial administration and make up their own new apparatus alongside of it. They've got to govern, even as a Kuomintang Chinese army of 200,000 men descends from the border to pillage and occupy on behalf of the victorious allies. And on top of all of that, Hanoi's government is also scrambling to stave off what's beginning to look like a British-assisted French invasion. Imagine all of that just for a minute. I mean, really imagine it. You're trying to set up a government, a totally new government, appointing ministers, figuring out who does what, setting up schools and social outreach offices, figuring out exactly how to deal with the aftermath of last year's famine and how to stave off what's bound to be next year's. All of it not as the newly elected president and congressman of the established system, but making it up from scratch. And at the same time as all of that, you're trying to supplant the colonial system of before, with all the French colognes doing their damnedest to oppose you. This is what Ho Chi Minh and his Viet Minh government have to deal with. Now, Viet Minh control was never as strong in the South as it was in the North. And although there was a Viet Minh majority in the provisional government in Saigon, that group and the new government it ran enjoyed nothing like the same level of popularity and mass support as in the North. So when the British General Gracie brought his men into Saigon in September and then began to release French troops from prisons and camps in Cochin, China, violence between those vengeful soldiers and the Viet Minh-run provisional government in Saigon broke out immediately. The British took control of the city, sort of arbitrating between the two sides. The French likewise set up shop in Saigon, while the Viet Minh administration lit out for the countryside, where the Europeans would have a harder time nailing it down. French troops from outside of the country would not begin to arrive until October, but things were already looking pretty bad. Despite the pressures and the encroaching French and Chinese, Ho knew that much of his Democratic Republic's legitimacy with the people would have to rest on decisive action, compared to the ineffectual quibbling of Baodai's administration under the Japanese occupation, which we talked about a little bit last show. The government eliminated the head tax and the land tax on small landholders. It expropriated some French plantation land and awarded it to landless peasants, although there was no more formal land reform as of yet. And in the great communist revolutionary tradition, it launched an ambitious literacy campaign. Interestingly enough, another one of Ho's first moves at this point was to disband the Indochinese Communist Party, in the interest of looking more conciliatory and less red. The ICP's cadres still operated, unofficially, in the villages, and its members still made up the leadership of the Viet Minh and the new provisional government. But, to appearances, especially in order to appeal to the Americans, at least, it was gone. The government also laid the groundwork for the penning of a new constitution, setting up general elections based on universal suffrage and encouraging the participation of women for a national constituent assembly, which would then write the document later in the fall. 
Given, as we know and they did not, that war was on its way, and that the new constitution wouldn't have much chance to function for nearly a decade, probably the most important thing Ho's government did in those early days was not that constitutional convention, but working towards the prevention and alleviation of future famine. Remember, given what we talked about last show, that on top of everything else we've talked about, that just that past spring, fully 300,000 Annamese and 2 million, or 1 in 5 men, women, and children in Tonkin had died from famine, just months before they were setting this new government up. On the day after the rally in Baden Square to declare Vietnamese independence, Ho persuaded his government to create a public subscription to raise money for alleviation, to make fasting mandatory on every 10th day, to ban the distillation of liquor from rice and corn, and to jumpstart the intensive cultivation of food crops to the exclusion of more lucrative export agriculture. According to Logoval, at least, while the weather and the bugs weren't nearly as bad that year, the country was still recovering from the previous disastrous growing seasons, not to mention the war and the Chinese occupation in the north, but that the Viet Minh's austerity and solidarity measures kept the 1945-46 famine's death toll in the five-digit thousands, that is less than ten, rather than the millions of the previous year. In a mid-September, the British General Gracie, who was in charge of British forces in the country, managed to calm Saigon and the surrounding suburbs somewhat. Acting on his commander's instructions, he started trying to facilitate talks between French civilian authorities and the Viet Minh administration in the south. A short truce did break out, long enough for General Leclerc, that is the head of French forces in the country, to disembark with his 5th Colonial Regiment on the 5th of October and to begin French efforts to root the Viet Minh out of Cochin China in earnest. That early truce followed the pattern of what would be later truces, wherein each side gained time to organize militarily, and real peace was not bought. Now, Frederick Logoval, the guy who wrote the book that helps me the most to put together an actual chronological progression of the French war in Indochina, he has these great little potted biographies of the major characters, and I'm going to give you one here for General Leclerc, who is, to be clear, right now the highest French military commander in Indochina, and briefly, the high commissioner of the colony, which is really a civilian position. So, quote, Major Jacques Philippe de Haucloc, an aristocratic cavalryman and graduate of Saint-Cyr, the French most prestigious military academy, had taken the pseudonym Leclerc to protect his family in France when he declared for de Gaulle in 1940. Dashing, charismatic, and deeply religious, every day of his adult life, when circumstances permitted, he received the Eucharist, Leclerc achieved his first distinction when he led 2,500 mostly African troops across 1,500 miles of the Sahara Desert in 1942 to join the British 8th Army in its campaign against Rommel. In 1944, he led the 2nd French Armored Division in the liberation of Paris, formally entering the city in triumph alongside de Gaulle on August 26th. Later, he took Strasbourg, personally hoisting the tricolor over the cathedral. His selection, a year later, as commander of the Indochina effort, was greeted with jubilation by colognes throughout Cochin China, and they gave him a hero's welcome as he entered Saigon. French flags flew everywhere, and portraits of de Gaulle hung in shop windows. De Gaulle's instructions to Leclerc had been plain. Be firm, and don't compromise, unquote. Coincidentally, General Leclerc's chief political advisor was none other than our Paul Muse. He'd gotten out of Indochina during the Japanese coup, and he'd been detailed to come right back. Muse likely played a major role in keeping General Leclerc's outlook realistic. Writes McAllister in the prologue to Muse's book, the general, quote, was not possessed by the illusion that Western military force could indefinitely control an Asian peasant society. His emphasis on negotiations with the Viet Minh was founded on his shrewd assessment that France simply did not have the military resources sufficient to subdue a Vietnamese population risen up against it. 
Meantime, the cornerstone of Anglo-American policy is the United Nations Security Council now meeting in London. Its purpose and its objectives are described in a statement by Edward Stettinius, Chief American Representative. My purpose in coming to England was to help to build an organization against war, the United Nations. We must organize ourselves against war and tyranny and want and unemployment. We have no time to lose. I shall not rest until the United Nations organization becomes a reality. Beginning in mid-October 1945, the French General Leclerc and the British General Gracie, using their own forces and thousands of Japanese troops who had been ordered by their government to cooperate and participate, began to expand their control outward from Saigon and into its suburbs, like Cholan, Jiadin, and Bianhoa. Thousands of Japanese deserted their units to fight alongside the Viet Minh, which was at this point honing the hit-and-run guerrilla tactics that would serve them for the next 20 years attacking French and British lines of supply and melting back into the paddies and villages of Cochin, China. By the end of the month, when the Europeans had secured most of the Mekong Delta, both sides had suffered heavy casualties. Leclerc never quite indulged in the same optimism as the politicians back in France or the ones that would be in America decades later, but by late in the year, that is 1945, Leclerc had reason to believe that he might be able to achieve an excellent military position to bring to the negotiating table. His first full division arrived at the end of October, and when the Ninth Colonials arrived aboard American ships, the first real act, as Logeval notes, of U.S. assistance to the effort, Leclerc felt he had the troops necessary to begin wresting the southern half of the country from the Viet Minh in earnest. And by mid-December, nearly every major town or city below the 16th parallel was in French hands, although the jungle on either side of the narrow colonial roads that connected them was another story. So where were the Americans in all this, as the Viet Minh consolidated their rule in the north and began fighting the French coming back in the south? Archimedes Patty had left Vietnam at the end of September, but the OSS was still on the ground, along with diplomatic missions in Saigon and Hanoi. And like all of the men we'd put on the ground so far, they were sympathetic to Ho and the Viet Minh and deeply suspicious of the French. In the highest circles of American power, though, Vietnam wasn't about Vietnam so much as it was about Europe and China. We had decided before and at Potsdam that we would indulge French interests in its former colony as long as that secured Paris's participation in our European anti-communist designs, namely NATO and the Marshall Plan. Exactly how far we'd indulge the French, and whether we'd give them much help, that was all still up in the air in the fall of 1945. As far as China, exactly how nationalist Ho was versus how communist was becoming to policymakers in D.C., a more and more salient question, as it became increasingly clear that Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang government was on the run from Mao's communist armies. In a vacuum, Ho might have seemed like a friendly little communist, but with the specter of a fallen China looming, every leftist in Asia began to take on outsized, terrifying proportions in Washington. The French, knowing even then how easily we could be spooked by the Reds, began to play up Ho's and the Viet Minh's communism in their communications with the United States. Abbott Lowe Moffat was a high-ranking member of the diplomatic delegation in Hanoi from the United States, and although he left in 1945 to run the State Department's Southeast Asian Affairs desk, he wrote a series of dead letters, effectively memos to himself to record his thoughts, with verifiable dates for posterity. Some of those memos came up when Moffat went before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on the causes, origins, and lessons of the Vietnam War, held in May 1972. Reading from Michael McClear's book now, quote, 
I have never met an American, stated Moffat, be he military, OSS, diplomat, or journalist, who had ever met Ho Chi Minh, who did not reach the same belief, that Ho Chi Minh was first and foremost a Vietnamese nationalist. He was also a communist and believed that communism offered the best hope for the Vietnamese people, but his loyalty was to his people. When I was in Indochina, it was striking how the top echelon of competent French officials held almost exclusively the same view. As department concern about the communist domination of the Vietnam government became more apparent and more uncritical, we began, I felt, to allow fears of such domination to overrule better judgment. We let the nationalist feelings of the country recede in importance, and we ignored the father figure that Ho Chi Minh was becoming for most Vietnamese. The French seemed not averse to taking advantage of our increased preoccupation with communism. Moffat summarized that in the early Cold War climate with Stalin's Russia, in which the U.S. needed its European allies, he could not get higher attention for the warnings the State Department was still receiving from its consul in Hanoi, James O'Sullivan. In urgent diplomatic cables, O'Sullivan pointed out that the French had always known Ho's background, were prepared to negotiate with him, but were also preparing to force the Vietnam government to collaborate on French terms, or to establish a puppet government in its place. French concern over communism, as Moffat quoted from his dead letter file, may well be devised to divert the department's attention from French policy in Indochina. There was a silence at the Senate hearings when those words registered 27 years later. Then committee chairman Senator William Fulbright exploded, So we have been had, as the slang goes, by our allies influencing our judgment. It is just incredible that a great nation could be so misguided, unquote, and unquote. Meanwhile, the opinions of the OSS men on the ground after Moffat left were much closer to reality than the French communications, as indeed the opinions of CIA intelligence, which succeeded the OSS, would remain until the end of the American War. George Wicks was one of those intelligence officers, at the time, based out of Saigon. Writing home to his parents, he said, quote, The French are not quite so confident as they were at the start that this would be cleared up in a few weeks. And I believe that, unless they keep large garrisons and patrols everywhere, they will not be able to keep the country submissive as it was before. The Anamite's great advantage lies in the fact that he is everywhere, that he does not need to fight pitch battles or organize troops to be a threat, and that no amount of reprisal can completely defeat him. I cannot say how it will end, but at least it will be a long time before Frenchmen can roam about the country with peace of mind." Unquote. This was an opinion with which Leclerc, the French commanding general, would come to agree. Even as his troops were securing a firmer and firmer hold over the population centers of Cochin China and southern Annam, Leclerc was becoming convinced that any permanent occupation would require orders of magnitude more troops than he had or that France had available. Leclerc was already having trouble defending his long, lonely lines of supply in the interior, and he was dealing with a Viet Minh that had been in power in the South for only a matter of days. His job would be, had to be, to re-establish French military control of as much of the country as possible, as quickly as possible, and then to bring the Viet Minh into negotiations from that position of strength. Leclerc could see very early on that the longer the war lasted, the worse it would go for the French. And while he did want to restore French sovereignty over the country, what he wanted more than anything was to avoid that longer war. Unfortunately for Leclerc's careful, intelligent planning, and for the future of Vietnam in general, while he stayed on as top military commander, he was replaced at the end of October as High Commissioner for Indochina by one George Terry Diargenlou. So here's another one of Logoval's potted biographies. Quote, Diargenlou was born in Brest, in Brittany, on August 7, 1889, the third of six children of Olivier Thierry Diargenlou, an aristocratic naval officer. 
Following his father's career path, young Georges Thierry entered the École Navale in Brest in 1906 and, on graduation, followed the typical career of a naval officer. After World War I, however, he resigned his commission at the rank of lieutenant in order to join the Carmelite Order, a Catholic religious body noted for its dogmatic severity and strict moral views. D'Argenlou, known as Father Luis of the Trinity among his brethren, rose rapidly in his calling and by the late 1930s had become the Carmelite's provincial in France. With the outbreak of World War II, he returned to his previous career. Captured by the Germans after the fall of France, he escaped and joined de Gaulle in London in 1940 as a Capitaine de Corvette, later rising to become an Admiral and, successively, High Commissioner for France in the Pacific, Commander-in-Chief of Free French Naval Forces based in Britain, and Assistant Chief of the Free French General Staff. D'Argenlou's devotion to de Gaulle and Free France puzzled many who saw him as a natural pétanist in view of his royalist birth his Carmelite training, and his adherence to the extreme right political views so favored by French naval men. Whatever its source, his Gaullism was genuine and unshakable, and he took up his new charge with determination, fully sharing the general's uncompromising ideas about maintaining the empire for the glory of France. Of average height and with a thin, angular face, Terry de Argenlou was 56 years old when he arrived in Saigon on the final day of October 1945 to take up his post as High Commissioner for Indochina. His worldview was Manichaean, black and white with few shades of gray. Good hatch prevail over evil. Far-reaching compromise was out of the question. And as 1946 progressed, more than a few observers, including some who shared the desire to reclaim French control over Indochina, would comment on this rigidity of mind, this lack of intellectual dexterity. As one wag on his staff quietly put it, Dargenlou had the most brilliant mind of the 12th century. Now the thing that I think we fail to recognize is that Ho Chi Minh, communist or whatnot, is considered by the people of Vietnam, and I'm speaking now of, of millions in South Vietnam, as the George Washington of his country. He's the man that they think threw off the French, the colonialism. Uh, just as we had our uh, 1776, uh, they had theirs in the 1940s. He also led uh, an underground movement against the Japanese who had occupied Vietnam and the whole Indochina Peninsula during uh, World War II. And whether we like him or not, whether we like uh, uh, the particular economic system or social system that he might develop or not, we must remember that he is indeed considered by many the peasants, the small people, the little people in South Vietnam and North Vietnam as the George Washington of his country. So, we've got the Viet Minh nationalist communist government in the North, finding its feet and lacking in material resources and men, both for government and military service. In Hanoi, it's fighting against the other more rightist nationalist factions, and in the South, it's directing a ghost Viet Minh administration that hides in the villages and wades through the paddies, pricking the French. Leclerc and High Commissioner D'Argenlou, meanwhile, are expanding their zone of control outward from the cities. And from the north down to the 17th parallel, halfway through Annam, you've got 200,000 Kuomintang Chinese soldiers looting the countryside bare. The question for all parties now was how to resolve this precarious situation. Ho wanted the Chinese out as quickly as possible, because he was more than a little afraid that, like more than a thousand years before, they might decide to stay. 
And given that Chiang Kai-shek used his Kuomintang army to take over the entire island of Formosa and turn it into Taiwan after losing his war against Mao, it was far from an unfounded fear. Ho also would have, ideally, liked to have kept an entire united sovereign country and to have booted the French out of it. The French, for their part, also wanted the Chinese to go, because they had similar fears of ongoing occupation. And the French wanted to subordinate the country again. Leclerc, on one side, wanted to get negotiations going to that effect as soon as possible, while D'Arganlu, vengeful, imperialist, and deludedly optimistic about French military might, was in no kind of hurry. Ho decided, in the end, that his only option was to negotiate with the French, using an entry of French troops into the north to effect a withdrawal of the Chinese. During a meeting of his government to decide on this dangerous, if necessary, course of action, Ho rounded on the more pro-Chinese of his men, saying, You fools, don't you realize what it means if the Chinese stay? Don't you remember your history? The last time the Chinese came, they stayed 1,000 years. The French are foreigners. They are weak. Colonialism is dying out. Nothing will be able to withstand world pressure for independence. So the French would come north, and then, somehow, they would go away. Ho began trying to set up talks with the French as early as mid-October, but the first real session went down on the 1st of December. He was negotiating with another one of our old characters, Jean Santeny, who had been head of the French military mission in Vietnam until the arrival of General Leclerc. Now, even as Ho was coming around to the sad fact that his only option was to negotiate with his own colonial oppressors and to welcome them into the only territory he more or less firmly controlled, the Viet Minh weren't passively waiting for the result. In a dynamic that would continue to run through the whole of their working political lives, as Ho was wrangling with the international situation and serving as a figurehead for the people, Vo Nguyen Jap was making practical preparations in the case that everything went south. Jap knew as soon as he took office when the new government formed in September that if they wanted to secure as strong a position as the French when negotiations eventually and inevitably began, they would have to transform their meager guerrilla forces into some kind of regular army that could contest French control in the field. Establishing and equipping that force would be difficult, given that some of the first acts of the Viet Minh government had been to abolish several colonial taxes. So they went to the public not for new taxes, but for donations to the national treasury. Ho made personal appeals throughout the month of September, and citizens from all over Tonkin turned up at collection points to donate cash and jewelry, family heirlooms, wedding bands. In the case of one 80-year-old woman who, according to Logoval, quote, secured a place in the national mythology by donating her life savings, a gold ingot wrapped in red silk, unquote. In the end, the DRVN, that is the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, collected 20 million piasters and 370 kilograms of gold in just a few weeks, which was a lot, but doubtfully enough to raise and equip a modern army. Even so, Jap began building the National Defense Guard, the new name for the old National Liberation Army, and by the end of December, Jap had put together 50,000 soldiers, 10 times more than he had commanded in August, as well as self-defense militias, known as two bays, and guerrilla units throughout Tonkin and Anam. From Logoval, quote, But how to supply these various units with weapons and ammunition? The problem was acute, perhaps even insoluble. The government had managed to accumulate some firearms from various sources, including the surrendering Japanese troops, but not nearly enough. Many units had to train only with sticks, spears, and primitive flintlocks turned out by local blacksmiths. With reluctance, Ho agreed to use proceeds from Gold Week to purchase 30,000 rifles and 2,000 machine guns from the Chinese. 
Jap also sent underlings to Hong Kong and Bangkok to barter gold, opium, and rice shipments for weapons. All of which helped, but Ho and Jap understood that critical shortages remained, particularly with respect to ammunition. The rapid gains made by Gracie and Leclerc and Coach in China against the under-equipped units of the Viet Minh made clear how formidable the military test would be, unquote. Jap would have to make do, though, because with the French definitively coming to town in the new year, there was not going to be much more time to prepare. Speaking of that new year, the Viet Minh fielded the vast majority of candidates and won the vast majority of positions in the first Vietnamese national elections ever, held on January 6th. The victory shored up Ho's legitimacy at home over and against the pro-Chinese elements of his administration and the other nationalist groups, as well as his legitimacy abroad, little good though that would do him. By the same time, early January, French control of the towns and cities of Cochin, China and Lower Annam was complete, although, as Logoval writes, quote, Leclerc would not have quibbled seriously with historian Bernard Fall's later assertion that in early 1946, France gained control of Cochin, China but only, quote, to the extent of 100 yards on either side of all major roads, unquote, and unquote. What's more, Ho Chi Minh's and Jean Santeni's negotiations were working against the clock. It had appeared as late as December that the Chinese would be there to stay, and that the two men would have all the time in the world to work something out by which the French would come up to replace them. But as January moved towards February 1946, in Chongqing in South China, French and Chinese negotiators had nearly come to their own separate agreement to have the Chinese army move back up to the border, after which the French, whether or not Santeni preferred it, would be free to invade Tonkin, negotiations or no. So if Santeni wanted to secure France's position in Indochina without a costly and possibly unwinnable war, and if Ho wanted the French to move the Chinese out while averting that same war, they would have to make a deal before d'Arganlu or Leclerc decided to invade in earnest. During this time of negotiations, what Ho found in Santeni was, according to Logoval, quote, a deep intelligence that was matched by a personal modesty and capacity to listen. No doubt it helped that Santeni also possessed a thorough knowledge of Indochina, having been a colonial official in the interwar period. For his part, Santeni found Ho to be a strong and honorable personality, who was not basically anti-French. In his book, The Story of a Lost Peace, Santeni would speak of his, quote, vast culture, his intelligence, his incredible energy, his asceticism, unquote. But Ho was also patient, Santeni stressed, willing to maintain an association with France for some specified period. Quote, he had struggled towards independence for 35 years. He could certainly wait a few years more, unquote, and unquote. Despite what would become a genuine friendliness between the two men, Ho and Santeni had a lot of ground to cover. In Ho's eyes, and in actual fact, Vietnamese independence had existed since September 2nd. A duly elected government was now in office, and until the French acknowledged that situation, negotiations would be difficult or impossible. The official French position, meanwhile, was that the creation of any new regime in Vietnam would have to grow out of French sovereignty over and rights in Indochina. Both sides also had internal problems. Nationalist groups and more intransigent elements within Ho's government were pushing for a harder line, with less or no compromise with the French. On the French side, High Commissioner d'Arganlu thought, says La Couture, quote, solely in terms of the grandeur of France, unquote, and was unhappy to be negotiating with natives in the first place. D'Arganlu had support for that line in Paris, too, where the French government had little of Leclerc's or Santeni's experience or conception of how difficult a war of conquest would prove to be in Indochina. D'Arganlu's position weakened somewhat after January, when General de Gaulle, who was all for retaking all of Indochina, left office. 
Both sides wanted the Chinese out of the north, because both French and Vietnamese suspected that General Lu Han, the man in charge of the Chinese forces, would have been happy to set himself up as a Tonkinese warlord. That was all clear enough, but three stumbling blocks held things up into the early days of spring 1946. The phrase Ho had used in Baden Square to declare independence was Doc Lap, which could be construed either as freedom or independence. The French wanted to go with the first interpretation of Doc Lap, meaning that Vietnam had never been independent, but free, and the Viet Minh, for obvious reasons, wanted the second. The second sticking point was the exact relationship which would be established between France and Vietnam. Santani favored Vietnamese entry into the new French Union and Indochinese Federation, while Ho rightly saw that as a total abrogation of sovereignty, since the French would control the economy, foreign relations, and military of both organizations. And the third problem was the status of Cochin China. Ho maintained that it was an integral part of Vietnam, and that it was automatically part of his new state. The French, wanting to hold on to Cochin China as its particular colony, demanded that it be allowed to determine, by way of carefully managed vote, whether Cochin China would join Vietnam or remain part of French Indochina. As early as mid-February 1946, it looked as though Ho would make the necessary compromises on sovereignty, but both sides' positions kept seesawing back and forth until the first week of March. By that time, too, the French and the Chinese had come to an agreement in Chongqing. The Chinese would leave by the end of the month, recognizing French rights in Vietnam, and the French would return several pseudo-colonial possessions to the Chinese. Moreover, tidal peculiarities in Haiphong, Tonkin's principal port, meant that French forces physically could make a landing either on March 6th or 7th, or they would have to wait another month. And neither Leclerc, and especially not D'Arganlu, were in favor of waiting, meaning that an agreement between Jean Santani and Ho Chi Minh had to be reached by the 6th of March, or that that arrival would be an invasion. From Logoval, quote, Chinese negotiators, meanwhile, leaned hard on both the French and the Vietnamese to come to an agreement. Strike a bargain, they in effect ordered, or you may find yourselves fighting us as well as your main adversary. This blackmail tactic worked. In the afternoon of March 6th, both sides, under intense Chinese pressure, signed a preliminary convention, wherein the French recognized the Republic of Vietnam as a free state, etat libre, within the Indochinese Federation and French Union. The Vietnamese agreed to welcome 25,000 French troops for five years to relieve departing Chinese forces, and in turn, France agreed to accept the results of a future popular referendum on the issue of unifying the three regions, that is, on the status of Cochin China, unquote. Both sides recognized that the agreement was only partial, and they both looked forward to a further hashing out of the political settlement in the coming months. At the signing of the deal, writes McClear in his book Vietnam, the 10,000-Day War, quote, Santeni raised his glass and, Jap recalls, expressed his joy at having driven away the specter of armed conflict. Ho Chi Minh responded in French, saying, We are not yet satisfied because we have not yet won complete independence. He paused, then in a calm, firm voice said, but we will achieve it. At each year's end, it has become a tradition among British newsreels to review its great events. This year, Pathé breaks new ground with the first of a new annual series. To select the great moments of 1946, we invited the editors of Britain's leading newspapers, of special meaning to Britain, the problem of Palestine. 
British troops, the hardest worked ambassadors any nation ever had cause to be proud of, are seeking to keep the peace in a quarrel which is not of their making. In the same tragic key, India. Leaders trained in agitation and revolt now face the task of building the new India for which they have preached. Mahatma Gandhi and his chief disciple, Pandit Nehru. In Europe, the year's most pressing issue was Germany. Pathé sent special investigators to seek out the truth about the food situation there. This was their report. The terrible retribution of the people who brought upon the world the curse of Nazism. To a Briton spending 80 million pounds a year to keep them alive, Germans are an inescapable problem. Their plight carries the seed of future dangers. Also high in the editor's ballot was UNO. The assembled United Nations may not have filled us all with confidence, yet they are the only hope we have of eventual peace and security. But as a more dramatic symbol of the new era of world justice, the panel of editors chose the Nuremberg trial. For them, this was the international event of the year. Tried by Allied judges, the end of Goering, Ribbentrop and the rest. This was the editor's choice. So the agreement was signed, with the French coming north in short order. Frederick Logeval notes that while the intention of the agreement was to stave off further violence, it might actually have made the ultimate confrontation even more likely, given that it put French troops where the fighting would be and gave Jap more time to build up the forces that would oppose them. It may also have been the best of several bad options, which is the argument that Ho and his government pitched to their people. The initial reaction among the Tonkinese to the March 6th Accord was icy at best, but Ho in Jiap and Pham Van Dong and the rest of Ho's best men went before a crowd in Hanoi shortly after the signing to lay their cards on the table. In sharp contrast to the way that American presidents in the future would make deceiving the public a permanent policy, Ho explained to his listeners that while the agreement was not ideal, it was the only way to stave off a possible agreement between the Chinese General Lu Han and the French General Leclerc, or more likely Diargenlu, whereby both foreign armies would exterminate the fledgling Viet Minh government and divide up Vietnam however it was that they wanted. There were, however, reasons to be hopeful. French politics was incredibly unstable after the Second World War, and once de Gaulle left office earlier in the year, a coalition of socialists, communists, and the Catholic-centrist Popular Republican Movement, or the MRP, remember that acronym, took over. It would be the first of 15 different French governments between 1946 and 1954, but for the moment all three parties made positive noises about granting further or even full autonomy to the Vietnamese in subsequent negotiations. The subsequent talks referred to in the March 6 Accords were to go on in the Vietnamese hill station at Dalat, between Giap and Diargenlu, and outside of Paris, later on, at the Palace of Fontainebleau in the spring and summer of 1946. Giap was to meet with Diargenlu in April, and both sides spent the rest of the month of March fighting in Cochin, China to see if they could improve their positions there. Once they had met in Dalat, Giap pushed for movement on parts of the March 6 Accords, a ceasefire in the south, followed by a popular referendum to determine the status of Cochin China. Diargenlu stonewalled on both points, and took a hard line on Vietnam's future place within the Indochina Federation, recognizing it not as the free state outlined in the March 6 agreement, but as a virtual colony, in the same position as Laos or Cambodia. Jap said of Diargenlu at the time that, quote, 
This defrocked priest had small, wily eyes under a wrinkled forehead and thin lips. My impression after spending a moment with him was that he was a cunning, arrogant, mean little man, unquote. The preliminary conference at Dalat thus achieved nothing. Violence escalated in the south, and any agreement would have to wait for the negotiations outside of Paris at the Palace of Fontainebleau. The Vietnamese team of negotiators that would meet outside of Paris did not actually include Ho, although the old revolutionary would be traveling along with them at the end of April, hoping to conduct a helpful publicity tour in Paris. The tripartite French government coalition had already fallen apart by this point, and Ho went to Biarritz, near the border with the Spanish Basque country, to await a new administration. Not for the last time, determined colonial administrators in Indochina pushed their own agenda, taking advantage of the political chaos in Paris. On the 1st of June 1946, Dayarganlu announced from Saigon the creation of a new autonomous republic of Cochin China, immediately integrated into the Indochinese Federation, of which he was high commissioner. The creation of said republic immediately cut off any chance of a popular referendum along the lines of the March 6 Accords, and nearly convinced Ho to turn back and go home immediately. Jean Santeni, who was there with Ho and Biarritz, convinced him to hold on and to hold out hope for the Fontainebleau talks. The Frenchman stayed on and kept Ho company, and as Logoval records, quote, The two men attended a bullfight and a pelota tournament across the border in Spain, went fishing, and visited the Catholic sanctuary at Lourdes. Ho asked people what it was like to live under German occupation, and attended a commemoration of de Gaulle's June 18, 1940 call to resistance, held at the memorial to the dead of the Biarritz resistance. After one festive meal at a restaurant in the small fishing village of Biratu, Ho signed the guest book with the words, quote, Seas and oceans do not separate brothers who love each other, unquote, and unquote. The new French government formed up on the 24th of June, still made up of the Catholic centrist MRP, the socialists and the communists, but with the more conservative MRP having gained much ground against the other two parties, and with Georges Bideau a proponent of colonialism as its president. That turn of events worked powerfully against both Ho and his team at Fontainebleau, led by Pham Van Dong. While all three French parties in the coalition in the spring had been willing to champion Vietnamese autonomy, now the MRP was pushing for conquest, and the leftists were unwilling to hold a hard line against it, thinking that they needed to support French nationalist causes to hold on to their places in Parliament. Ho, meanwhile, became the talk of the town, the most glittering guest in all of Paris, but his popularity did little to improve the negotiations taking place in the countryside. Those talks started poorly, and didn't much improve over the summer. The main negotiator on the French side was one of Diarganlu's right-hand men from Saigon, and he shared similar opinions about Vietnamese sovereignty, that is, that it should not exist. Likewise, the new government under the MRP's Bideau was not disposed towards compromise. Under those circumstances, it can't be much of a surprise to you, as I don't think it was much of a surprise to the people at Fontainebleau, that all of the same problems and sticking points that Giap and Diarganlu had encountered at Dalat came up again. The Vietnamese wanted full independence and a weak association with France, which just to me already sounds like a pretty reasonable compromise on their part. The French were pushing for self-government, limited by French control of Vietnamese sovereignty. That is, that the French would control the country's economy, military, and foreign policy. That is, that it would be a colony again. On Cochin China, the Vietnamese, again reasonably and correctly, I think, claimed that it was part of one country, their country, while the French maintained that it must be kept apart. The French, encouraged by their military victories that had handed them most of the South, or at least its cities, were accordingly cocky. 
The head French negotiator said to Fame Van Dong that, quote, We only need an ordinary police operation for eight days to clean all of you out, unquote. And if that is how they really felt, then it makes sense that the French at the time felt zero need to compromise with the Vietnamese negotiators. And as bad as all that was, Diargan was doing his best there in Saigon to make it even worse. The more moderate General Leclerc left Hanoi in July for Africa, and his replacement, General Jean-Étienne Valouy, was a hardliner. Diargenlou said to him on his arrival that, quote, I am amazed, mon général, yes, amazed, that France should have such a fine expeditionary corps in Indochina, and that its leaders should prefer to negotiate rather than to fight, unquote. Diargenlou did his best to make sure that it would be fighting rather than talking that won the day, and he made another unilateral announcement from Saigon, declaring that a federal conference of delegates from Cochin China, Laos, Cambodia, and the parts of Annam that the French controlled would decide what happened with the Indochinese Federation without any input from the DRVN. That announcement sent Pham Van Dong into a justifiable fury and nearly torpedoed the Fontainebleau talks altogether. They eventually went on, but without much progress on any front. The final nail in Fontainebleau's coffin came from General de Gaulle, who, though he had officially retired, remained the dominant voice in French politics. On the 27th of August, 1946, after the negotiators had already spent most of the summer achieving nothing, and the day that French troops reoccupied Laos, de Gaulle declared that, quote, United with the overseas territories which she opened to civilization, France is a great power. Without these territories, she would be in danger of no longer being one, unquote. And that was that for Fontainebleau. Ho, though, was still in Paris, and was still hoping that he had one or two cards to play. A long one from Logoval now. Quote, The United States, as always, loomed large in Ho's mind. Your country, he told American journalist David Schoenbrunn on September 11th, can play a vital role for peace in Southeast Asia. The memory of Roosevelt is still strong. You never had an empire, never exploited the Asian peoples. The example you set in the Philippines was an inspiration to all of us. Your ties with France are strong and durable, and you have great influence in this country. I urge you to report to your people the need there is to swing the balance towards peace and independence, before it is too late for all of us. Do not be blinded by this issue of communism. To Schoenbrunn's reply that Americans did not think communism was compatible with freedom, Ho nodded in understanding, but said that the Vietnamese people would not rest until true dependence had been won. When Schoenbrunn suggested that such a struggle would be hopeless in the force of France's military might, Ho responded, No, it would not be hopeless. It would be hard, desperate, but we could win. History offered many examples of ragged bands defeating modern armies. Think of the Yugoslav partisans against the Germans, or further back, simple American farmers taking on the mighty British Empire. The spirit of man is more powerful than his own machines. The Viet Minh, Ho stressed, would make full use of the swamps, the thick jungles, the mountains and caves, the territory they knew so well. It will be a war between an elephant and a tiger. If the tiger ever stands still, the elephant will crush him with his mighty tusks. But the tiger does not stand still. He lurks in the jungle by day and emerges only at night. He will leap upon the back of the elephant, tearing huge chunks from his hide, and then he will leap back into the dark jungle. And slowly the elephant will bleed to death. That will be the War of Indochina, unquote. But Ho's public appeals masked serious doubts that he had about what returning to Vietnam empty-handed would mean for the situation back at home and for his own position within the government. 
Don't leave me this way, he said to Jean Santeni and the socialist French overseas minister Marius Moutet on the same day as he had his interview with Schoenbrunn. As his time in Paris was coming to an end, into mid-September, the Fontainebleau talks had already collapsed, and Ho's own private negotiations with Moutet had gone nowhere. But at midnight on the 14th of September, Ho crept out of his hotel and made his way to Moutet's apartment. The two men talked into the early hours of the morning, Ho perched on the bed and Moutet in his pajamas, literally within it. They reached and signed what became known as the modus vivendi of September 14. From La Couture's political biography of Ho Chi Minh, quote, The text summarized in broad outline the provisions laid down in March, provided safeguards for French interests in the North, and stipulated that the democratic freedoms were to be respected in Cochin, China. It provided for a cessation of hostilities in the South, which was partially applied to both sides. Ho had succeeded in preserving the lifeline, but at the cost of giving away on several points of detail. These concessions entailed risk, for attitudes had hardened in Vietnam as a result of the measures announced in Saigon by Admiral Diargenlu. There were many powerful opponents to the policy of peace through negotiation, and they had been quick to argue that Diargenlu's moves had been the inevitable outcome of the deception to which Ho had been an all-too-ready victim. Nuremberg, Germany, once the shrine city of the Nazis, ravaged by the war Hitler launched on the world, ironically the scene of the final chapter of his partners in conquest. American units were on security guard outside the Palace of Justice during history's most momentous trial. No chances were taken on any escape plots. Carefully scrutinized were the passes of the 400 spectators and court attendants. For in the courtroom, the first of the Nuremberg trials was being held before the International Military Tribunal set up by an agreement signed between the U.S., Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. Judges and prosecutors of all four countries took part in the trial, where the accused were 22 individuals thought to be the most guilty of the surviving Nazi leaders. Facing justice at the proceedings which began in November 1945 and ended September 30th, 1946, were Hermann Goering, Joachim von Ribbentrop, Wilhelm Keitel, and the other partners in war crimes. Now, with their voices heard in four languages simultaneously, interpreters made it possible to listen to the proceedings in English, Russian, French, and German, the justices delivered their judgments. Hess received a sentence of life imprisonment. Ribbentrop and Keitel sentenced to death by hanging. Thus it went. Twelve defendants to die, seven given prison terms, and three acquitted. Sentenced to die, Goering was later to beat the hangman by taking his own life. Sharply in contrast with Nazi justice, the defendants received a fair trial for their war crimes. Most of the evidence presented to the tribunal was in the form of documents, but 116 witnesses gave oral evidence. Diplomat Franz von Papen, who was acquitted, received congratulations. Also acquitted, Jalmar Schock, Hitler's one-time financial brain, and Hans Fritzsche, radio propagandist. They found mercy, a word missing from the vocabulary of the master criminals of Hitler's time. Ho left Paris for the last time in his life towards the end of September 1946, and headed back home uncertain of how the Vietnamese people would react towards an agreement that looked like all compromise for Vietnam and none for France. Apparently Ho wasn't gloomy on the ship though, and I want to keep including these little asides because they give us some idea of how and why exactly the old revolutionary Ho Chi Minh became the great Uncle Ho, the much beloved rather than the much feared communist leader. From La Couture's book, quote, 
He was rumored to be a deeply troubled man, convinced that in signing the text of the modus vivendi of 14 September he had thrown away his prestige, and perhaps his whole future. But the commander of the sloop he took back home has since stated that his guest was in excellent spirits throughout the month-long voyage, and proved the liveliest of table companions, discussing a wide variety of subjects, and even trying to tease the ship's chaplain about the existence of God." Unquote. Diarganlu asked to meet Ho on his way home, so Ho's sloop pulled up alongside Diarganlu's ship in Camran Bay, and La Couture and the rest of the gaggle of journalists looked on as Ho and the old warrior monk talked quietly for a couple of hours. At the end, they both stood before the press and affirmed that they'd taken a step towards a faithful implementation of the modus vivendi and peace in the South. From La Couture, who was reporting from not ten feet away, quote, at this point, the admiral, bringing his thin smile into play for the first time, observed, I believe a step has just been taken along the road to agreement. Then something very surprising happened. We saw Ho turn to the high commissioner and embrace him. The look on the admiral's face at that moment had to be seen to be believed, unquote. So why the hug and kisses on the cheeks from Ho to the high commissioner? I think Ho was willing to walk down any avenue, literally any avenue, if it could give him even the smallest possible advantage or tiniest bit of breathing room from the French. That seems to have been the purpose of the modus vivendi, and here too, whether it was to try to generate a little personal sympathy, or to do just that little extra thing to win over the French press. And Ho was right to be anxious, because even his ever-loyal Vo Nguyen Jap was pretty unhappy with the September 14th agreement, and getting out ahead of his boss. Here's another one of those potted biographies from Logoval, because I think it's finally time we get the full story on Vodwin Jap. Quote, he was born into modest circumstances on August 21st, 1911, in Quang province, in the narrow waste of central Vietnam, near the 17th parallel. The name Jap meant armor. His father, who instilled in the young boy a respect for education, died in a French prison after being arrested for subversion. An older sister died the same way. These tragedies fostered in Jap a hatred of the French, and he was further inspired to fight colonial rule after reading, at age 14, Ho Chi Minh's French colonialism on trial. In short order, Jap became active in nationalist politics, and the French Charité opened a file on him. During this time, he married, and, in order to support his wife and their young daughter, took a position teaching history at a private school in Hanoi. His lectures could be intoxicating. On the first day of class, one student recalled, Jap announced that he would depart from the usual curriculum, which covered France from 1789 to the mid-19th century. Look, there are a lot of books about this stuff, he declared as he paced in front of the room. If you want to know about it, you can look it up. I'm going to tell you about two things, the French Revolution and Napoleon. His students sat transfixed as Jap expounded on Marie Antoinette's indulgences, on Robespierre's life and Danton's death, and, most of all, on Napoleon's military campaigns. Right down to individual minor battles he would go, his admiration for Napoleon palpable, the students hanging on every word. All the while, he continued to immerse himself in nationalist literature, including that of Ho Chi Minh. In 1937, he joined the Indochinese Communist Party, and in 1938 he wrote a book, The Question of National Liberation in Indochina. ICP leaders took notice of this smart and educated comrade, who seemed to possess boundless energy. In 1940, they sent Jap and another young party member, Pham Van Dong, to China to make contact with Ho. Jap's wife wept as he bade her farewell. Arrested soon thereafter by the French, she died in Hanoi's Ho Alo prison, although Jap would not learn the news for three more years. The encounter with Ho occurred in Kunming. 
At 50, the old revolutionary was frail and hunched over, but Jap immediately noticed the piercing eyes. The three men launched into a lively discussion as they walked along the waterfront, and a bond was struck. On whose orders, Jap went to Yan'an in northern China to take part in military training with Mao Zedong's communist forces, then returned south in time to be present at the historic founding of the Viet Minh in the cave near Pakbo in Kaobang province in May 1941." After his negotiations with Diargenlu at Dalat in April, Jap was convinced that the French would not compromise, neither in Vietnam nor at Fontainebleau, and the High Commissioner's announcements and schemes over the summer did nothing to change his opinion. So Jap set about laying the groundwork for the armed struggle that was surely to come. While almost all of the candidates elected in January had been Viet Minh, Ho, before signing the agreement with the French in March, had roped a bunch of more rightist nationalists into the government in order to relieve some of the Chinese pressure. Jap began purging them from the government over the summer, ensuring that at least within a Viet Minh-run administration, Ho would be able to avoid problems of internal dissent. Likewise, as soon as he was back from Dalat in April, Jap started preparing base areas for his forces from which they could attack the French and into which they would be able to retreat. The first of these was in the region known as the Viet Bac, in the Paddies and Highlands north of Hanoi, reaching up to the Chinese border. This was where the Viet Minh had first developed and expanded, and they knew the area and its honeycombed limestone caves incredibly well. The second area was south of Hanoi and the Red River Delta, occupying the western highlands in a pocket from Ninh Binh to Tan Hoa to Vinh, a quarter of the way down into Anan. That is to say that months before the war broke out in earnest, Jap was already setting up strongholds and redoubts totally unknown to the French. And while the full outbreak of war was a ways away, the fighting had never really actually stopped. What followed the Chinese occupying forces' withdrawal north to the border in May 1946 was a scramble to control the villages of Tonkin and Annam between the already present Viet Minh and the returning French. Battles and skirmishes were fought sporadically, even as both sides were working towards some sort of peace negotiation, and all while they were under an official ceasefire. French authority was stable only in the major cities and their immediate environs, led by a sort of puppet government administration in Saigon. The Viet Minh, by contrast, had more or less solid control of the North and North Annam, run by the DRV government administration in Hanoi. A Viet Minh cadre named Nguyen Binh organized the religious sects and nationalist groups against the French government in Cochin, China, announcing a national united front, including parts of the Cao Dai and the Hoa Hao, in spring of 1946. Over the summer, again during a ceasefire and while negotiations ran on in France, an insurgency began to bubble and then boil in the south, which is why the most substantive part of the modus vivendi of September 14th was its creation of a ceasefire in Cochin, China, to take place at the end of October. Bin added his organization to the unofficial structure of the Indochinese Communist Party, which, remember, had been dissolved but was actually still kind of operating, in June of that year. While we don't know if Ho was entirely happy with Jap's purges and preparations, he need not have worried about his reception with the people. Hundreds of thousands turned out to meet him at Haiphong, and hundreds of thousands more met his train as it made its slow way to Hanoi, where millions of people greeted him in an ecstasy of emotion. Ho's popularity, however, could and did little to improve the developing situation in the country. Fighting had been endemic over the summer, and both rebellious Viet Minh elements, like Nguyen Binh, and right nationalists claiming to be Viet Minh in the interest of provocation had kept up constant attacks on French supply lines. Diargenlu, to fight back, worked to create an army of partisan guerrillas fighting on the French side. 
That plan, the first of many, many attempts to create a non-communist guerrilla force, failed. And as Logoval writes, quote, Though the telegrams flowing into Paris invariably reported that the rebels were suffering the vast bulk of the casualties in the clashes, taken in aggregate, the reports show a gradual strengthening of the Viet Minh position in the south. By late October, the French controlled no more than a quarter of Cochin China, unquote. To make the possibilities for peace just that little bit worse, Jean Santeny had also headed back to France, feeling that, with the modus vivendi signed, he'd pretty much fulfilled as much of his mission as he was going to be able to fulfill, bringing the number of smart, reasonable Frenchmen in Vietnam down to nearly nil. At that point, the end of October, the ceasefire of the modus vivendi kicked in, and both sides gained some breathing room. Yet another round of talks began after the ceasefire with the aim of establishing a more solid peace in the South as preparation for a referendum on the status of Cochin China went forward. Nguyen Binh refused to disband or disarm his guerrillas as a precursor to the negotiations, and the French refused to start them until he had, and the process stalled out immediately. Although the fragile peace, for the most part, held, at least in the South. The French were not happy with that situation. Before the ceasefire, they'd been relieved of the solid position in Cochin China that they'd used to hard bargain at Dalat and Fontainebleau. Now it was months later and their control of the south was precarious, while in the north, Jap was recruiting and training an army. The French commander, General Jean-Étienne Valouy, who, remember, had replaced Leclerc, proposed that, quote, Instead of contenting ourselves with controlling rebel attacks in the south, we should put serious pressure on the rebels by taking large-scale initiatives in Hanoi and Annan. This seems to me to be the inevitable recourse to the ultima ratio, unquote. Diarganlu concurred and asked Paris for reinforcements in the form of a light armored division of 10,000 troops. His request was approved on October 23rd, before the ceasefire even went into effect in the south. The French decided, moreover, that the best way to proceed was to wrest Haiphong from the Viet Minh in order to prevent supplies from the Chinese communists, among other places, from arriving there to the north. As a first step on that path, the French colonial administration unilaterally decided to open a customs house in Haiphong Harbor on November 11, 1946. This was a serious provocation for a few different reasons. One, the French had not established sovereignty over Vietnam or Tonkin, and customs collections are the right of the sovereign authority. Two, it robbed the nearly penniless government of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam of part of its meager revenues. And three, it put French ships and troops in very close proximity to any weapons or supply shipments that Jap was trying to get into Tonkin. Ho protested this move to Georges Bideau, the French prime minister, to no avail. Nine days later, on the 20th of November, French customs authorities stopped and searched a Chinese junk that they claimed, and I think they were probably both right and truthful, was carrying undeclared motor fuel and military supplies. Vietnamese forces fired on the French, the French fired back, barricades went up all over the city, and it looked like war had broken out for a minute, before frantic negotiations established a ceasefire and a return of Vietnamese and French forces to the respective quarters of the city. Diarganlu was feeling and acting with even more urgency and pressure than normal because French parliamentary elections had resulted in a communist-inclusive government that he thought he could not count on to keep him and his troops in Indochina. As a result, Diarganlu was even more eager than usual to push things to a head with the DRVN. He leaned on Valui, and the general kept up the provocations in Haiphong. On the 21st of November, just after the Haiphong ceasefire had been signed, Valui told his man on the ground in Haiphong, one Colonel Debay, to, quote, secure the evacuation of the Vietnamese armed forces from the city, unquote. 
Since the French had no sovereignty, and therefore no authority to actually order those troops out of the city, what this meant was to attack them and force them out. Valois backed up this order by sending a telegram to his top man in Hanoi, one General Morlier, telling him to, quote, exploit this serious incident to the full as a means of improving our position in Haiphong, unquote. Morlier, understandably reluctant to start a war all on his own, replied that such a move would abrogate every part of the modus vivendi, not to mention the March 6 Accords. Valois sent Morlier another telegram, quote, In the face of premeditated aggression, your honorable attempts at conciliation are no longer appropriate. The time has come to give a harsh lesson to those who have treacherously attacked us. By every means at your disposal, you must take control of Haiphong and bring the government and the Vietnamese army to repentance, unquote. On November 23rd, Colonel Debay, who, La Couture reports, hated the Vietnamese and who was, after all these telegrams, happy to march on any Viet Minh forces in Haiphong, demanded the evacuation of the Vietnamese sector of the city. When the fighters there just erected more barricades, Debay called for naval artillery and bombarded the quarter. Paul Muse estimates that the unprovoked attack killed some 6,000 civilians, and by the next day that part of the city was a smoldering ruin. the Statue of Liberty and into New York Harbor sails an army troop ship with over 860 refugees from Europe, victims of Nazi persecution. Many of them spent long, terrible months in concentration camps, but this is a happy day. In notorious Auschwitz camp, these girls' arms were indelibly tattooed with prison numbers. But in America, life will begin again. Also aboard are Polish Catholic priests, survivors of Dachau. A Jewish chaplain kept this Torah with him through all his travels. Of the children aboard, 75 are orphans. Many of them are without any records of their homes or even their nationalities. Relatives and friends are here to meet the newcomers, and they get a welcome they'll never forget. America opens her heart to those who long for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Reading from Logoval now about the attack on Haiphong, quote, Strikingly, Valois did not get prior approval from Paris for the bombardment. Not for the first time and not for the last, Saigon made a major policy decision without so much as consulting metropolitan officials. Even de Argenleau, then in Paris for meetings with George Bedeau, leader of the Provisional Government of France, and others learned of Valois' order only after it had been issued. Then again, there's no doubt that Valois acted in full confidence that the High Commissioner would approve his action. So he did. On November 24th, D'Arganlou cabled his congratulations from Paris and added, quote, We will never retreat or surrender, unquote. By the 28th, the French were in control of Haiphong. And that's the end of the longer quote. Ho hoped, as the prospects for avoiding war collapsed, for help from the United States. 
The U.S. dispatched that same Abbott Low Moffat from the East Asia desk at Foggy Bottom back to Hanoi. His mission was apparently to reassure Ho of Washington's support for, quote, greater Vietnamese autonomy within the framework of democratic institutions, unquote, and to tell Ho not to get violent about it. That is, to give him some pretty empty assurances in the end. Really, though, Moffat was there to assess how communist the regime was, given that the French had been raising the red alarm for a year now. Ho offered the United States the use of Camran Bay as a naval base in return for U.S. assistance against the French, but Moffat stayed noncommittal and headed back to D.C. As Logoval reports, quote, He reported to Washington that communists were indeed in control of the Vietnamese government, and that for now a French presence would be required so as to ward off both Soviet and possible Chinese encroachment. Moffat's superiors took that as evidence that they should reject Ho's overtures and steer clear of any formal role. They paid less attention to the other part of Moffat's report in which he expressed sympathy for the nationalist cause and a conviction that France had no option but to compromise. On December 17th, the State Department issued a circular to missions abroad that made note of the Viet Minh's communist character and said a continued French presence in Indochina was imperative. Quote within a quote now, not only as an antidote to Soviet influence, but to protect Vietnam and Southeast Asia from future Chinese imperialism, unquote and unquote. After the massacre in Haiphong, provocations and attacks in Hanoi multiplied into December. A French paratrooper fired into a crowded street. Tuve militiamen murdered French civilians, tit for tat, increasing in severity as the days went on. The French sent Santeni right back to Hanoi, where he and Ho feverishly worked at peace while Valoui and Diarganlu schemed towards war. Yet again, reasons for hope had sprung up. Another French government had collapsed, and on December 12th, the Chamber of Deputies in Paris called on Ho's old communist friend, Leon Blum, to take over the prime ministership and form a government. Blum had written in a socialist journal just a week before that, quote, there is one way, and one way only, to maintain in Indochina the prestige of our civilization, of our political and spiritual influence, and of our legitimate interests. We must reach agreement on the basis of independence. We must keep confidence and preserve friendship." Unquote. Ho cabled Bloom in the hopes that he could do something to restrain French aggression in Vietnam, yet another time to no avail. Bloom's government was weak and meant really only to last until the new constitution of the French Fourth Republic kicked in in the new year. The decisions of the Indochina administration, rather than those of their temporary metropolitan masters, continued to run policy in Vietnam. Vo Nguyen Jap, for his part, kept his men at work in Hanoi building barricades, digging trenches, and evacuating civilians. Those operations had been successful enough that Ho could confirm with one of his deputies that all of the children were out of the city by the 17th of December. Tensions increased unbearably. You had the North's major city, part of it guarded by French troops, the rest of it being fortified by Viet Minh cadres and regular forces. The Tuve militiamen in particular were desperate to start the fight, egged on, reports Paul Muse, by Japanese agents provocateurs that the French had encouraged to join their ranks. The French historian Philippe Devier described the feeling, quote, acute anxiety, determination to break out at all costs from a position which they saw as untenable, violent anti-French feeling, revolutionary dialectics. Each of these played its part, unquote. On December 18th, the French occupied the grounds of the Bank of Indochina and ordered the Viet Minh militia to disband. At noon on December 19th, the next day, Ho sent a letter to Jean Santeni. Monsieur the Commissioner, and my good friend, 
The atmosphere is becoming more and more strained at present. That is very regrettable. Pending the decision from Paris, I am counting on you to work out some way of improving the climate. Please accept my kindest regards and convey my respects to Madame Santani." But this time there was no last-minute negotiation, no eleventh-hour telegram from Paris, and no ultimate compromise between Santeni and Ho. And that night, Giap forced the issue. Reading from Santeni's own A Lost Peace now, quote, At 8 p.m., an exceptional calm came over the city. The clock over the Yersin Hospital, next to the French Commissioner's office, slowly told the hour. It doesn't look as though we're in for trouble tonight, I said to my colleagues. I'm going home for a while. I got into my car. A moment later, there was a low roar, and the city was abruptly plunged into darkness. The electric powerhouse had been blown up. It was exactly 8.04 p.m. The first shots began to sputter, rending the shadows which enveloped the town and engulfing all our hopes and efforts." Jap's operatives had blown not just the Hanoi power station, but most of the major power plants all over Vietnam, plunging the country into darkness as his guerrillas opened fire. As he was trying to make his way to the Hanoi Citadel to link up with General Morlier, Santani's armored car ran over a mine, and the Frenchman barely managed to escape the blazing vehicle, his leg mangled by shrapnel, before a patrol picked him up and rushed him to a hospital. The Indochina War now began in earnest. The guerrilla resistance in the cities gave cover for Viet Minh operatives to move out to the countryside en masse from Hanoi, Saigon, Hue, Da Nang, and the rest of the major urban centers. Ho's government likewise escaped up into their northern base area, moving back into the same caves that they'd used to found and build the Viet Minh in the early 1940s. From La Couture, quote, That same evening, Ho issued a proclamation. Compatriots all over the country, as we desired peace, we made concessions. But the more we made concessions, the further the French colonialists went, because they are resolved to invade our country once again. No, we would rather sacrifice all than lose our country. We are determined not to be enslaved. Men and women, old and young, regardless of creeds, political parties, or nationalities, all the Vietnamese must stand up to fight the French colonialists to save the fatherland. Those who have rifles will use their rifles. Those who have swords will use their swords. Those who have no swords will use spades, hoes, or sticks. Everyone must endeavor to oppose the colonialists and save his country. Even if we have to endure hardship in the resistance war, with a determination to make sacrifices, victory will surely be ours. Unquote. The Battle of Hanoi would go on in grueling house-by-house house fighting for two entire months before the rest of the Viet Minh forces just disappeared one night, retreating to their base areas in the countryside. Whatever date you want to pick for the start of the Indochina War, whether it was really after independence when the French moved troops into Cochin China in October 1945, or Haiphong in November 1946, by the beginning of 1947, it was definitively begun, and fighting was going on throughout the country. Frederick Logovall takes time at this point to break down responsibility for the conflict. Quote, Yet if it takes actions by both sides to make a war, both sides are not always equally culpable. And if it's true that the Vietnamese fired the first shots on December 19th, and it looks as though that is the case, ultimately France bears primary responsibility for precipitating the conflict. D'Argonlu, dubbed the bloody monk by the left-wing press in Paris, had enormous power to formulate policy, often without consulting Paris, and as we have seen, he thwarted the prospects for a negotiated solution at several junctures in 1946. He seemed determined to provoke the Hanoi government into full-scale hostilities, and I do believe that is the case. D'Argonlu, upon returning from a brief visit to France in late December 1946, 
vowed that France would never relinquish her hold on Indochina. The granting of independence, he declared, would only be a fiction deeply prejudicial to the interests of the two parties, unquote and unquote. But really, in the end, not just d'Arganlu, or not just d'Arganlu and his commander Valois, but the entire French administration, including the administration in Paris, was in the end sympathetic to keeping Indochina within the French Union, if not the French Empire, including the communists and socialists that made up Leon Blum's government. Even Blum himself said on December 23rd, when the Battle of Hanoi was raging, that peace could only be worked out once quote-unquote order had been restored. Marius Moutet, the socialist overseas minister, with whom Ho had worked out the September 14th Modus Vivendi agreement, likewise asserted that there couldn't be any further negotiations without an, quote-unquote, end to terrorism. I see a lot of parallels here between any number of Western occupations of Eastern countries. Take, for example, the Israeli occupations of the Palestinian territories. Israeli concessions and entrance into negotiations are always predicated on a cessation of terrorism that is, of Palestinian violence. But at the same time, Israeli killings of Palestinians are accepted as just part of the norm of policing those territories. It's the same thing here. The French want Viet Minh ceasefires and disarmament as a precondition to talks, but there's no mention of the French, for example, leaving Indochina and abandoning their weapons. This was the line that all the communists and socialists there in Paris ended up taking tolerating the provocations of the Indochina administration overseas because in the end they were either in favor of retaining Indochina flat out, or they thought that they had to be seen to be in favor of retaining it in order to stay in power back in Paris. The French public, meanwhile, didn't think much of policing up what they were used to thinking of as their subjects overseas. The only news agencies on the ground there in Indochina were the AP and the AFP, the Agence France Presse, and D'Arganlu kept a tight leash on both using the AFP as a virtual propaganda agency. So the story that the French received at home was one in which the Vietnamese were engaging in violence in order to end what appeared to them there in France to be a peace process on March. Even if, at this point, we give French leftists and part of the French public the benefit of the doubt, Paul Muse asserts that they just could not see their way out of this situation. Quote, as a sop to its public, the French government, so hopelessly divided at home that it could not control the provocations of its representatives in Indochina, dispatched a new set of officials to the colony. Of only slightly less inflexibility than their predecessors, these men realized that they could not compromise with the Viet Minh and still expect to have much prospect for their political careers in France. Perhaps they knew deep down that it was all an illusion, that France really could not subdue the Viet Minh, that Leclerc was right but it was an illusion that had the power of reality. France was too unsure of itself at home to risk a blow to its prestige from Vietnamese guerrillas. The colonial mystique was too inextricably wound up with what France thought itself to be." Unquote. Finally, de Gaulle was also behind the outbreak of war in Indochina and the refusal to compromise. And although he was technically out of government, or out of office at least, he was far from off the scene. From Logoval, quote, a week later, after the outbreak of hostilities, D'Arganlu, now back in Saigon after a visit to metropolitan France, expressed satisfaction with the turn of events. Personally, he wrote in his diary, I have since September 1945 loyally executed the policy of agreement in Indochina. It has borne fruit everywhere, except with the Hanoi government. It's over, unquote. By the end of the first two months of fighting, the French had destroyed and captured Hanoi, losing nearly 2,000 men dead or severely wounded, with Viet Minh losses probably much higher. 
For six grim years, men fought for an ideal. In truth, it was a war of ideologies. The tragedy of 1947 was in a different key. While the nations conferred, the political skirmishing went on. For the democracies of the West, Britain's Hector McNeil had this to say. Our designs are plain, our doors are open, our press, our people and our parliament are free. For the totalitarianism of Soviet Russia, Vyshinsky persistently maintained that the Western states were warmongering. The clash between the Soviet creed and Western civilization was on. The Truman Doctrine meant war on communism. Britain finds itself under the necessity of reducing or liquidating its commitments in several parts of the world. In Had the nations learned the lessons of the recent war? That was the question. The answer did not make easy reading. In Palestine, fighting had already begun. Partition had brought Arab and Jew to grips. In Europe, communist-inspired unrest had paralyzed French industry. By December, it was clear the tactics had failed, but they had brought France near to a semi-fascist regime. Propaganda emanating from the common form met with some success. In Italy, the communists cashed in on economic difficulties. Once again, their attempt to achieve results before American aid could come to the rescue had failed, but time was short. Recovery for Europe was also dependent upon German prosperity. The failure of the foreign ministers to agree on German unification would mean a divided country, and the return to vigor of a demoralized people would take longer to achieve. For the British Commonwealth, there was no Cold War. By mutual agreement, Burma became an independent republic. Two months earlier saw the transfer of power in India. Earl Mountbatten, the last of 21 viceroys, ended 200 years of British rule. The civil war that followed partition brought death to half a million people. India gained freedom at a price. In France, General Charles de Gaulle staged the year's biggest comeback. Success for his party at the municipal polls put him among the men of the year. In the international field, the honors go to George Marshall, America's Secretary of State. His economic aid program may be the turning point for Europe. Lacatour reports that the French were sure that Ho Chi Minh's own comrades would oust him at that point. Given the extant examples of communist regimes in the world, leaders that had made mistakes on this scale, because the French thought that the Viet Minh must have viewed attempts at negotiations that led to the French entering Tonkin and then making war as mistakes, those leaders tended to end up deposed and or dead. But Ho continued to enjoy the confidence and respect of his colleagues, alongside the adoration of the public at large. And Ho continued to embody the peasant revolution in his own person. From La Couture, quote, Ho was exactly what was needed to awaken new ardor and loyalty in the villages, and there are numerous other scenes which testify to Ho's serenity and stoicism at this time, and to the other qualities which had been molded by 30 years of fighting for the revolution. Visual impressions of him standing outside the crude hut in which he habitually slept, not far from his soldiers, sitting deep inside a cave and typing out an order of the day for the troops, inspecting a volunteer commando group and wearing a scruffy lumber jacket with his beard and his hair blowing about in the wind climbing a steep slope in the highlands, stick in hand, always himself, always in the right place at the right time, always midway between the Mao of the Long March and Gandhi at the spinning wheel, unquote. Another one of Ho's colleagues reported that he would awake early in the morning to water his pumpkins and sweet potatoes and geraniums, and that he liked to play volleyball with the other cadres. Reportedly, when Ho passed the ball, he'd yell, 
there's diplomacy for you. I don't, I don't know exactly why, but I think that is excellent. Ho continues sending letters from his government's new base in the highlands and jungles north of Hanoi to his friends and acquaintances in the French government, appealing for a return to the status quo ante of the March 6 Accords. This, to me, represents incredible self-control, and a realism that is much more steely-eyed and focused than the kind that always, at least in Washington, turns to military force. Ho knew, or thought he knew, that the Viet Minh could defeat the French in open warfare. He also knew that said warfare would destroy, principally, the little people of his country. And unlike the French in Saigon and Paris, or the Americans that would follow after them, the little people of his country were always foremost in Ho's mind. So he ignored whatever personal animus he might have had towards the French rampaging through the suburbs of all Vietnam's major cities, and he kept writing those letters. There were those few on the French side, too, who were open to the idea of a negotiated end to the fighting even then. Marius Moutet, the socialist overseas minister, and General Leclerc left metropolitan France on a fact-finding mission to Indochina at the end of December. Moutet stopped off in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, while Leclerc continued on to Hanoi. After taking a look at the disposition of the troops and the nature of the fighting so far, along with everything he'd learned on his previous tour, General Leclerc decided, and said, that no less than 500,000 French troops would be necessary to take and hold the countryside, and he said that even that was a lowball, and that the problem was, thus, a political one rather than a military issue. The French newspapers, however, and thus public opinion, did not yet reflect these realities. Right in time to hit him in the sympathies, Leclerc received an offer of talks from Ho in mid-January. From La Couture, quote, One of his officers describes how the former commander-in-chief strode furiously about his office, thumping the floor with his stick and saying, It is imperative that we go. It is imperative that we do not let the opportunity slip. Oh, if only Moutet were here. I cannot do anything without his approval, unquote. Unfortunately for Leclerc, peace, and Vietnam, the foreign minister came to Hanoi by way of Saigon. In the southern capital, Diarganlu politely detained the minister for half of a week so that his aides could give a fully Frenchified story of what went on in Haiphong and Hanoi. By the time Moutet made it up to meet Leclerc, he'd become convinced that the events of 19 December were an unprovoked attempt at a coup by the Viet Minh and that no further negotiation with the devious Ho Chi Minh could be possible. Moutet said at the time, quote, Before any negotiations, it is necessary to have a military decision. I am sorry, but one cannot commit such madness as the Vietnamese have done with impunity, unquote. Ho continued corresponding with Jean Santeny while the Frenchman recuperated from his wounds, but this would be the last real chance at peace between the two sides, scuttled once again by Diarganlu's machinations. French forces under Commander-in-Chief Valois made strong gains against the Viet Minh immediately. Their superior firepower, when it was concentrated around the major cities and assisted by the density of road networks there, was more than enough to overwhelm the DRVN's Tuvay militias and even its regular soldiers. There was, however, one major problem, and that was the lack of men. Leclerc had had 40,000 at his disposal at the end of 1945, when he was just occupying Cochin China, and the number had actually decreased in 1946, when those troops would have to cover the 1,000-mile north-south stretch of the country. Given how recently the war in Europe had ended, no government in Paris was going to be willing to draft men into an army headed for Indochina. Valou would have to rely on volunteers and colonial African troops from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Senegal, as well as all the Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Laotians that he could scare up. From Logoval, quote, In addition, Valois had units of the French Foreign Legion, about which so much has been written, and which included within it a sizable number of ex-Nazis. 
Most legionnaires in Indochina in 1947 were indeed Germans in their mid-twenties, who had gone into the Wehrmacht young and knew no occupation but war, who had helped conquer France in 1940, and who bore scars from wounds suffered in Russia, Poland, or Romania. The majority took a five-year enlistment as a means to escape the French prison system. Partly as a result of their experience with that system, they had no special love for the French. This manpower shortage left the general with limited options, and his predicament worsened in March 1947, when an additional division of French colonial troops had to be diverted en route to Indochina to quell an insurgency in Madagascar." Unquote. This would be the story through the whole course of the war. Even after American money and materiel started pouring in, the men were just never there. The volunteers did not exactly pour in either. An opinion poll that McClear found in a February 1947 issue of the New York Times reported that only 36% of the metropolitan French population favored war, 42% were for negotiations, and 8% thought France should leave its former colony alone altogether. Now, General Valois was no Leclerc, but neither was he as willfully ignorant of the situation as D'Argonleau. He knew that without huge numbers of troops, there was no way that he could fight and win a war of pacification over the long term. Nevertheless, he imagined, once they'd secured the cities and the deltas, a series of swift sweeps and pincer movements along the colonial roads and up the rivers might be able to cut off and capture both the Viet Minh leadership and the bulk of their fighting forces, allowing the French to bring whoever was left to the negotiating table and forcing the concession of sovereignty. The strategies that the French and the Vietnamese brought to bear on each other from the very beginning would go on to exemplify warfare between a modern Western power and a peasant-based communist one for the rest of this century, so I think it's worth taking a look at what they were trying to do in a little bit more detail here. The French pursued a tactic that they called the oil slick, where troops would first capture and fortify urban or otherwise defensible centers throughout the country, and then slowly extend their zone of control into the countryside. The French had employed the technique to great effect time and again in their African territories. But Fall points out that the very reason it was so effective in Africa is that France largely colonized the wide open spaces and arid areas of the continent, meaning that it was easy to spot, isolate, and cut the rebellious colonials off from their resources. In Vietnam, the story was different. French tanks would race from Saigon north to Bien Hoa, west to Godao Ha, and then southeast back to Saigon, marking a giant triangle. Not nearly enough troops would then sweep through the triangle while the Viet Minh melted away. When the French established their far-flung strongpoints, they had to be supplied, since the French would have insufficient numbers of aircraft until the end of the war, by ground convoy. Because of the oil slick strategy itself, the French had to give equal attention to hundreds of small towns and isolated forts. Jap's guerrillas, on the other hand, could concentrate on just one road, just one convoy, picking it apart from the safety of the trees, and then moving off and denying the French a battle once they'd mustered their forces. Vo Nguyen Jap, for his part, looked to Mao Zedong's operations in China and his writings in the late 1930s for inspiration. Mao described a revolutionary war in three phases. First, there was withdrawal, when the forces of the peasant revolution have to retreat in the face of the numbers and firepower of the enemy, avoiding major battles and relying on small-scale guerrilla tactics. In the second phase, as the enemy's political will begins to falter due to the length and cost of the war, and as the revolutionary forces grow in strength and number, the revolutionaries can now engage in a mix of guerrilla and regular operations, striking at distant and disparate targets to keep the enemy off balance. And in the third phase, the general offensive, 
With the Revolutionary Army now large and powerful, regular forces engage in conventional battle with the enemy to force the final contest for political and territorial control of the country. Moreover, while the French were constantly plagued by manpower problems, Giap, as we already mentioned, had more than 50,000 regulars under arms by halfway through 1947, with hundreds of thousands more involved in guerrilla groups, self-defense forces, and local Tuvay militias. While Jap commanded the men and executed the plans, Fall makes a note of mentioning that it wasn't Jap who ended up writing the book on Vietnamese war, but one Truong Chin, the then Secretary General of the still officially non-existent but really actually existent Indochinese Communist Party. What's important about it is that the Viet Minh and the Vietnamese Communists in particular were scrupulous about making sure that military considerations were subordinate to political ones. We'll talk a lot more about this when we get to the American War, but when Clausewitz wrote in On War that war was a continuation of politics by other means, it wasn't a flip little phrase, but a very literal and very important one. This is related to the ends and means stuff that we've talked about a lot in the shorter shows. If you're prosecuting a war the way that you ought to, every step you take should take you closer to your eventual political goal. French decision-making throughout this whole period was confused at best. Ho offered the French pretty much what they'd wanted back in the summer of 1945, but at that point de Gaulle was dreaming of more. Ho offered the French most of what they wanted in March 1946, and at that point they took it, with only undotted I's and uncrossed T's left to take care of. Over the summer of 1946, with the help of Diarganlu, they reversed course, deciding that in fact March 6 wasn't what they'd wanted. By the fall of 1946, they were moving towards open warfare, but it's not clear that anyone was connecting that warfare to the political settlement in the end. Diarganlu and his commanders were acting without the go-ahead from Paris. The government in Paris was ostensibly pro-communist, and it's pretty unlikely that anyone with a level head would have said that a colony racked by years of war was better than a member of the French Union kept intact, but French policy was totally without direction. French war policy, that is policy within Vietnam, the kind that was directed by General Valois, was likewise unfocused. The French were determined, perhaps for reasons of face-saving, to secure all of the territory of Indochina, which meant that they had to continually meet the Viet Minh in the highlands on the guerrillas' terms. But the French, had they surrendered the interior and just barricaded the deltas and the shorelines, probably could have put themselves in a much stronger negotiating position against Ho's government, achieving the political settlement that they should have been aiming at the whole time, where they were constantly reinforcing and defending forts in far-flung areas of the interior. In contrast, the Viet Minh relentlessly directed all of their action, all of their violence at one solitary target, the French will to stay and fight. And a large part of that was making sure that political policy drove military policy and not the other way around. Not only that, but political officers, what are generally known as commissars, were detailed to every unit from the regiment up top to the platoon down below. Whereas it would have been hard to find a private soldier in the United States Army who knew exactly what he was doing in Vietnam once they were in Vietnam, it would have been just as difficult to find a single member of the Viet Minh who didn't know exactly who he was fighting, why, and in what stage of the war they were at that moment. As McClear writes, quote, this grassroots discipline, both voluntary and imposed, this million-man army that was everywhere but nowhere, is what the French tried to counter with conventional regiments. Though the French could at any time and at any place deploy far superior firepower, they were in fact outgunned and hopelessly outnumbered, their entire army effectively besieged." Unquote. 
Whereas the French opened the campaign season by focusing their forces on the environs of the cities, Jap did the exact opposite, abandoning the major towns and lines of communication in Tonkin and Annam and withdrawing the bulk of his army to the Viet Bac, up in the staging areas that the Viet Minh had used in the early 1940s. The 50,000 members of the Viet Minh regular forces would be hidden in highland base areas to train and await a steady supply of arms, while the regional guerrilla forces would nip away at the widely distributed French. From Logoval, quote, To support the armed forces, the unofficially operating ICP collected taxes, cash in the towns and rice levies in the villages, and recruited porters to serve in the clandestine logistical network. When the situation demanded, the cadres reinforced education and propaganda with terror tactics, including the assassination of village leaders. If you went too far, if you killed too many village notables, you risked a vigilante reaction, in which people rose up and declared, to hell with it, we're going to get killed regardless, we might as well band together and take a few of the gangsters with us. Terror would be a part of the Viet Minh arsenal, used when it suited their operations, but always handled with precision. It would be utilized selectively, not only in the military sense, but in the sociological sense, targeting only those people who, by virtue of their positions or their extensive land holdings, weren't very popular anyway." Unquote. The French, who, like the Americans after them, would apply their own kinds of terror, through secret police and through the accidental or indiscriminate bombings, shellings, and killings of civilians, were unable or unwilling to exercise similar restraint, which meant that the Viet Minh weren't exactly losing the battle of hearts and minds, even when they resorted to terror. Likewise, the Viet Minh were able to move in and around the villages and the deltas undetected by the French, and set up their parallel government in those villages undetected by the French, because they were from the villages in the deltas. And at worst, the people were neutral, unwilling to help, but unwilling also to inform on the Viet Minh. Anyone the French tried to set up in the villages, though, appointed headmen or political officers, were easily picked out and eliminated by the operatives of the DRVN. Meanwhile in France, the nation's thoughts swept back to the days of the liberation. Here, the season brought sobering reflections as the French mourned a hero, General Philippe Leclerc. More than four years ago, it was General Leclerc who liberated Paris at the head of the French 2nd Armoured Division. It was a day to be remembered in the French capital. The young general, only 42 years old, was the man of the hour. Paris remembered that August day, as on the dim December morning, its citizens filed through the Arc de Triomphe, where the general's coffin lay in state. With 11 other companions, he had been killed in an air crash in Algeria. He died not far from the scene of his greatest triumph, his forced march from Lake Chad in Central Africa to the 8th Army Lines in Libya. From the memorial service in Notre Dame, the funeral procession moves through the streets of Paris to the Invalides. Thousands of silent, bareheaded Parisians forgot their national problems and braved the winter weather to honor the general. A captain at the outbreak of war, Leclerc changed his name to avoid reprisals against his wife and children when he joined the Free French Forces.
behind the coffin came officers from the 2nd Armored Division carrying the general's decorations. His was a soldier's death. In the Invalide, he will rest in honor by Napoleon's side. The French attempts to press their gains in the spring of 1947 bogged down literally, with the monsoon turning the country into an impassable mire from May to October of that and every year. From Logoval, quote, Even in dry weather, as Volui would discover to his sorrow, the road network was primitive, an object of neglect by a succession of colonial administrators. The Viet Bac, which for the duration of the war would remain the main headquarters, supply base, and training ground for the Viet Minh, to speak of roads was really a euphemism. Cart paths and trails were numerous, but even the grandly named Route Coloniale 3, the main thoroughfare in the area, which appeared as a thick line on the map, was a one-lane dirt road, seldom more than 12 feet across, with weak bridges and countless ambush sites. Such was its state of repair most of the time that the fastest-moving convoy could not average more than 8 miles per hour." Unquote. It might be reasonable to ask why exactly the road network was so bad if France had been doing pretty extensive infrastructural work over the whole life of the colony, nearly all the way up to the Japanese coup in early 1945. There are a few different factors there. First, the Viet Bac, where Ho and the largest contingent of the Viet Minh were hiding, had also been their base area before independence, and it had gotten less attention from the French than nearly anywhere else in the country, since the French did not control it since 1942 or 43. And second, hearkening back to our short show about maintenance, a road in a mountain jungle, even if it's got a three-meter-deep foundation and excellent paving, is a fragile thing. Aggressive jungle flora tears up concrete and asphalt in no time, and most of the circuitous highland stretches of the colonial routes had never been paved that elaborately. A simple dirt track, even if it's been graded and had its flanks cleared, will disappear in a matter of months. In countries with wet, dry climate cycles, and the Mexican Sierra I used to live in had one, soil-fixing plants shrivel up during the long, dusty months of the dry season, and when the rains come, and in Vietnam they were monsoons. Without that vegetation there, roads wash out, boulders come loose, whole hillsides detach and hurtle towards valley floors. A road system through mountainous jungle is a miracle for existing at all. Any expectation on the French part that they'd be able to use the colonial routes in anything but the driest of seasons, and for the most part only with tracked vehicles, disappeared with the rains in May and June. The guerrillas, who went over the mountains rather than around them on the roads, quickly zeroed in on the colonial routes as the weak points of France's highly mobile but heavily mechanized war effort. Apart from the ambushes that we've already talked about, sabotage was endemic. One of the simplest and most effective road-cutting techniques was to dig so-called piano-key ditches, one cutting into one side of the road, one cutting into the other. Trucks couldn't pass them until they'd been filled, which gave the Viet Minh ample opportunity to attack. And even if no ambush were planned, the same villagers that the French had to press gang into filling the ditches would come out that same night and dig them back up again, massively slowing down French logistics. Even when the roads were dry, and even when no Viet Minh were around, Travel could still be treacherous. Logoval records that, quote, North of Lang Son, the notorious Route Colonial 4, designed to bring nightmares to a succession of French commanders, became hair-raisingly difficult. At Dong Dang, it passed within 750 yards of the Chinese frontier, then climbed over narrow passes and snaked along mountain ledges and innumerable hairpin bends, before plunging down steeply to more tight turns. Drivers, often alone in the cabin, manpower was too short for two-man crews, 
had to navigate the road in old beat-up American-made GMC trucks, many lacking spare tires or functioning springs. Usually the cabin would be baking hot, and the driver, swinging the steering wheel from lock to lock on the hairpins, had to strain to see through the mist to make sure he was a safe distance from the truck in front of him. Breakdowns were common and could halt the entire convoy for long, nerve-wracking hours." Unquote. Animus against the French was widespread as soon as they moved to retake the colony. Like we set up above, and like we mentioned last episode when we were talking about Mu's escaping to Dien Bien Phu through the jungle from Hanoi, the Vietnamese peasantry had accepted and acquiesced to the French during the colonial period. They'd understood both intuitively and through the proclamations of the Mandarins in the late 1800s that the French were just too technologically and militarily advanced to resist. But what Mu's asserts is that the peasantry never saw the mantle of the Mandate of Heaven quite resting on French shoulders. Rather, the colonial period was a kind of interregnum. Heaven was taking its time, but eventually it would restore the mandate to the Vietnamese as it always had in the past. Now, I don't know how much of this was conscious versus unconscious, but I suspect it sometimes was one, sometimes the other, and sometimes a mix of both. When I say conscious, I'm sure there were some deeply Confucian peasants who thought right along these lines, intentionally working out who, if anybody, had the go-ahead from heaven. And then I think there were people with whom it was totally unconscious. We have this kind of thing in the U.S. too. A lot of people, maybe most people, work out who they're voting for by looking at what the candidate says and does. They might not pay very close attention or think very hard about it, and our current president is proof, but they think about it. And then there's the observable phenomenon that candidates who seem popular become more popular by virtue of seeming popular. People, for whatever reason, like to vote for someone who's already winning, totally apart from positions, and that, I think, is an unconscious bias much akin to the one that some population of peasants had in Vietnam at the time. They weren't thinking about the mandate of heaven explicitly, but they were picking up on who held the reins of power and who, more importantly, would be able to put them to good use. In any case, Muse asserts that by the time he fled Hanoi in 1945, long before our current moment in the episode, the Vietnamese people hadn't quite yet decided upon whom the Mandate of Heaven would fall, but they had, overnight, agreed that the French interregnum was over. The great mass of the Vietnamese people, revolutionaries to one side, had amicably tolerated the French occupation. But Muse noted on that trek through the jungle that if his countrymen tried to come back, they would not be nearly as welcome. Commander-in-Chief Valois' sodden road-bound troops were discovering that Muse had been dead on. The French were now the object of nearly universal disapproval from the Vietnamese, from those who had never met a Viet Minh cadre to those who actively opposed the Viet Minh. The result being that even among apolitical villagers, the Viet Minh could expect help, while the French could expect, at the very least, passive resistance. When the most important lands in the country, the fertile paddy bottoms of the Red River and the Mekong, were packed with sympathetic villages, French attempts to pin down the Viet Minh ended in miserable disappointment as a rule. Calling the House Un-American Activities Committee to order, Chairman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey opens an inquiry into possible communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. The committee is seeking to determine if Red Party members have reached the screen with subversive propaganda. Mr. Thomas takes an impartial stand in his opening talk. I want to emphasize at the outset of these hearings that the fact that the Committee on Un-American Activities is investigating alleged communist influence and infiltration in the moving picture industry must not be considered or interpreted as an attack on the industry itself. 
nor should our investigation be interpreted as an attack on the majority of persons associated with this great industry. I have every confidence that the vast majority of movie workers are patriotic and loyal Americans. A long list of prominent motion picture witnesses appear before the committee. Speaking for the films, Eric Johnston, president of the Motion Picture Association, talks frankly concerning the attitude of the producers. We're accused of having communists and communist sympathizers in our employ. Undoubtedly, there are such persons in Hollywood, as you will find elsewhere in America. But we neither shield nor defend them. We want them exposed. We're not responsible for the political or economic ideas of any individual, but we are responsible for what goes on the screen. We guard that with great care. If communists have attempted to inject their propaganda into the motion picture, they have failed miserably. We will never permit them to succeed. Ho, at this point, whatever his confidence in the eventual success of a peasant guerrilla war against the French, knew that he was isolated internationally, despite the sympathies of other Southeast Asian states, and that his war would last that much longer if he couldn't secure support and supplies from abroad. And Ho, in his search for international allies, was coming up short. The Chinese communists under Mao were still fighting their civil war, and it hadn't yet emerged from the touch-and-go tentative balance it had been in since the end of the Second World War, with massive American aid helping to save Chiang Kai-shek's forces from what would look before long like an inevitable communist victory. The Soviet Union, meanwhile, was focused on Europe, with little time or expense to spare on Vietnam. Likewise, Stalin was suspicious of Ho after the dissolution of the ICP, and he wasn't champing at the bit to get him what he needed. India, Burma, and Malaya all spoke out in favor of the Vietnamese, but those statements went unheard in Paris and D.C., while in London they prompted the British to quash efforts to actually assist the Viet Minh in all of its current and former possessions. Ho looked, as ever, to the Americans, who were at this moment reaching their own new policy in the world. It had been a couple of bad years for the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. The Grand Alliance had begun to crumble even before the war ended, and 1946 had played host to four major stumbling blocks to reaching a peaceful detente between the powers. The Soviet Union had rejected the Baruch Plan for international control of nuclear weapons and energy generation in June. The Baruch Plan had proposed to spread nuclear knowledge for power generation, to put in place United Nations safeguards to ensure that it would only be power generation, and to eliminate atomic weapons from national arsenals altogether. Given that, at this point, only the United States had those weapons, the Soviet Union found it intolerable to negotiate until they developed their own atomic bombs. The USSR refused to withdraw its troops from Iran at the beginning of the year and continued pressuring the Iranian government for oil concessions while aiding a communist Azerbaijani separatist movement, all things that we talked about in the Iran shows. And Moscow was leaning on the Turks to hand over rights to transit and to establish a naval base in the Turkish Straits, all of which put Washington on edge. Meanwhile, there was the Greek Civil War. I've mentioned this in passing for some reason in a ton of shows, but in my first year of college, I took a seminar on the rise of extremist politics in the 20th century. The idea of the so-called freshman pro-seminars was to teach us incoming students how to write, and towards the end of the semester, our professor assigned us a slate of intentionally obscure topics for our term papers. I pulled the Greek resistance during the Second World War and ended up spending two solid weeks at the Library of Congress digging through old OSS papers and State Department briefs. 
What became abundantly clear was that during the war, Greek monarchists, even those belonging to resistance groups, actively collaborated with the Italian fascists and then later with the Nazis, both of whom invaded. Why would they do that? Well, because the main body of the Greek resistance, the body that valiantly and largely successfully fought a guerrilla war against both Mussolini's and Hitler's troops, was communist. That communist resistance had won the admiration of the Greek people over the course of the war, and when it ended, they established a republican government. Given Greece's proximity to the then-Soviet Union, the Western powers found that situation intolerable, and the British, even as the World War was ending, landed troops and began to help the monarchist-fascist collaborators to put their king back on the throne. By the end of 1946, with the empire crumbling, and with the Labour Party's Clement Attlee rather than the more staunchly anti-communist Churchill at Whitehall, the British determined that they no longer had the resources to fund either the Greek war or to give the subsidies to the Turkish government that were allowing Ankara to resist Soviet requests vis-a-vis -vis the Turkish Straits. At this moment, Truman formulated the doctrine that bears his name and consciously worked to replace Britain as the so-called leader of the free world with the United States. In a speech in March 1947 designed to, quote, scare the hell out of the American people, unquote, Truman outlined how a communist victory in Greece would destabilize Turkey, which would in turn destabilize the Middle East, where we were, as we heard in the Iran shows, just developing a keen interest. By way of asking the Congress for $400 million to prop up the Turkish government and hand the win in the Greek war to the monarchists, the president outlined the Truman Doctrine. Quote, I believe it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressures, unquote. That statement, or variations of it, would go on to govern American policy for decades. Truman, likewise, would create the Federal Employee Loyalty Program in that same month, the first step towards the McCarthyism and red-baiting that would predominate in American electoral politics until the 1970s. Diargenlou, in light of the speech, began to hammer away, by way of his dispatches and the Agence France Presse, at the idea that the struggle in Vietnam not as a small colonial war, but a fight of the West against the communist Viet Minh, who were direct pawns of the Soviet regime. This was a line laser-focused on the Americans, who were devolving even by 1947 into a red-terrified mass. General Leclerc, out of official Indochinese office, and therefore more free to be honest, had said early on his tour in January that, quote, anti-communism will be a useless tool as long as the problem of nationalism remains unsolved, unquote. That is, that the anti-communist line might appeal, and would appeal, to the Americans, but that anti-communism was not a serious motivating force for the Vietnamese, and in fact, it never would be. From Logoval, quote, even liberals who surmised, correctly, that France was using the communist bogey to justify a war undertaken for other reasons, feared that Moscow would seek to exploit the situation if the fighting grew more bloody, hence their push for a serious U.S. effort at facilitating a negotiated settlement. Such a settlement would undercut the appeal of radicalism within Vietnam and at the same time deny the Soviets a propaganda advantage. Might a defeat cause Western-oriented moderates to lose their grip on power in Paris and enhance the prestige of the Soviet-supported PCF, maybe even bring that party to power? The thought gave the Truman team heartburn and made them reluctant to quibble with Paris over its pursuit of a military solution in far-off Southeast Asia, unquote. While at the outset, the U.S. ruled out providing any direct military aid to the campaigns in Indochina, the government was aware that huge amounts of the $2 billion that we'd sent them in Marshall Plan aid were headed to that war. 
George Marshall, instructing his deputy in negotiations with the French, laid out all of the reasons why we respected them and what they were up to, and then said, quote, We cannot shut our eyes to the fact that there are two sides to this problem, and that our reports indicate both a lack of French understanding of the other side, more in Saigon than in Paris, and continued existence of a dangerously outmoded colonial outlook and methods in the area. Furthermore, there is no escape from the fact that the trend of the times is to the effect that colonial empires of the 19th century are rapidly becoming a thing of the past, unquote. But Marshall insisted, having what may have been the best mind in the United States or the world at that point, that the Viet Minh overall weren't motivated by Marxism as much as nationalism and a desire for self-determination. When Marshall's deputy then asked the general, in light of those facts, what was it that he should suggest to the French regarding their use of Marshall Plan funds? Quote, Marshall could only throw up his hands as he concluded in a startling admission of impotence. Frankly, we have no solution to the problem to suggest, unquote. What would not become clear to us in the United States for decades was that Stalin was for the most part preoccupied with problems at home and in Eastern Europe, and that he was sending nothing in the way of arms, money, or moral support to either the Greeks or the Vietnamese. Nor would Moscow end up sending them to the great majority of communist nationalists the world over, including the ones we talked about in Guatemala. Truman's announcement that the United States would support free peoples resisting armed minorities could have been read as an endorsement of the Viet Minh rather than the non-communist Vietnamese, since the French were nothing if not an armed minority in the country. Ho and his people hoped that that was the way it was meant, but no immediate help from the United States was or would be forthcoming. Ho also got no response when he sent his personal doctor as an envoy to the American diplomatic mission in Hong Kong over the summer. What did happen was a surprise attempt at outreach from the French. In January of that year, the constitution of the new Fourth French Republic had gone into effect, and the provisional government under the communist Leon Blum dissolved and became the official government under the center socialist Paul Ramadier. Diarganlu, in March 1947, scheming as ever, handed his resignation to the government in Paris. He had anticipated getting reconfirmed in his post and thereby strengthening his position, but to his shock, they accepted his resignation. They sent out the radical socialist Emile Boyard to replace him. Boyard wasn't quite a communist, but he was sympathetic to the Viet Minh, and he had with him, as always, our own Paul Muse, who was likewise inclined to favor Ho versus a new go at colonization. And the both of them weren't very quiet about hunting for ways to end the conflict politically and immediately. At this point, the radical socialists, the center socialists, and the communists were still sharing power in Paris. But after a clash over workers' wages, Ramadier sacked his communist ministers. There was no public outcry, with the French populace now becoming more wary of the Red Menace in Europe, and suddenly the Viet Minh were shorn of firm allies in the French government. Two more factors contributed to the exact nature of the negotiating mission that eventually reached Ho. Ramadier, not much inclined towards the communist Viet Minh, nevertheless saw the value in extending some sort of olive branch, just as a sop towards public opinion at home, which was not firmly behind the war. And second, while Boyart, Muse, and the High Commissioner's other aide, Mesmer, were all inclined to make a real offer of peace, according to La Courture, quote, At the beginning of April, they received a very sharp warning from General de Gaulle, who was then attempting to build up his new rightist political party, the Rally of the French People, as the voice of French nationalism. Anyone, he said, responsible for the quote-unquote loss of a quote-unquote French territory would sooner or later be brought before the high court, unquote. 
It happened as well that both Mesmer and Boyart had served personally for and alongside de Gaulle during the war, and his warning shut down any chance at real negotiations. So it was that on the 14th of May, 1947, Paul Muse once more made his way into the jungle on a hunt for Ho Chi Minh. He had been dispatched by Boyart with an offer of ceasefire, but he had been saddled with conditions that Muse knew would be totally unacceptable to the Viet Minh leader. They demanded that the Viet Minh hand over all of its weapons, allow French troops freedom of movement through the whole country, concentrate its disarmed fighters within certain areas, and deliver all non-Vietnamese to the French as prisoners. That last one was actually a particular sticking point, something that Bernard Fall, alone among all of my authors, fixes on. Ho's forces had accepted refugees from the Japanese, German, and Foreign Legion military missions in his country and in South China. These soldiers were the only men who could train Jap's forces in the use and deployment of the Japanese, French, and American weapons that the Viet Minh had bought or captured to arm themselves. In the absence of any international support, and it was definitely absent, these men were key to any ongoing resistance, if the proposed ceasefire were to break down. Likewise, as Musewell knew, Ho would personally balk at turning over men who the French would then most likely execute. As to why Paul Muse would accept a hopeless mission, one with considerable danger to his life, and were he to try to actually negotiate with Ho, his career and his hopes of becoming overseas minister, McAllister explains his motivations in the prologue to their book, quote, Yet he willingly accepted the task, despite the effrontery of the terms he carried, because he hoped Ho Chi Minh would suggest some new way to avert a bitter and prolonged war. Perhaps he was politically naive. He would not disagree with such an opinion. But there are times, he felt, when a man must do some things where he can no longer believe in himself, unquote. Muse met Ho near midnight in Tai Nguyen, some 35 miles north of Hanoi. The Frenchman had arrived unmolested, and he was more than surprised to see, in the room he was ushered into, a French cooler filled with cracked ice and a bottle of champagne. The logistics, says Fall, quote, of getting both ice and champagne, not to speak of the cooler and proper glasses, in that setting must have been staggering, unquote. It became clear to Muse that Ho had expected to agree to the agreement he was offering, and its total unacceptability weighed on him the greater. Muse listed the conditions of the ceasefire, with Ho silent and pensive. But when Muse reached the final clause, that of handing over the foreigners, Ho said, Monsieur the Professor, you know as well. If I were to accept this, I would be a coward. The French Union is an assemblage of free men, and there could be no place in it for cowards. Ho stood, shook hands, and walked out. The Viet Minh detailed an officer to conduct Paul Muse back to the French lines. The young man had recently been studying law in Hanoi, and he asked the Frenchman if it was to be war. Muse told him that it looked that way, and the officer said, so I shan't be finishing my studies in Paris after all. It is necessary only to glance at a map to realize that the survival and integrity of the Greek nation are of grave importance in a much wider situation. If Greece should fall under the control of an armed minority, the effect upon its neighbor Turkey would be immediate and serious. Confusion and disorder might well spread throughout the entire Middle East. Should we fail to aid Greece and Turkey in this fateful hour, the effect will be far-reaching to the West as well as to the East. We must take immediate and resolute action. I therefore ask the Congress to provide authority for assistance to Greece and Turkey in the amount of $400 million 
for the period ending June 30, 1948. The seeds of totalitarian regimes are nurtured by misery and want. They spread and grow in the evil soil of poverty and strife. They reach their full growth when the hope of a people for a better life has died. We must keep that hope alive. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedoms. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world, and we shall surely endanger the welfare of this nation. Great responsibilities have been placed upon us by the swift movement of events. I am confident that the Congress will face these responsibilities squarely. Even as Prime Minister Paul Ramadier was sure of his course of action, the ministers of parliament remained split, with communist deputies beginning to call for a political resolution that granted Vietnamese independence, and the socialists, seeking to be seen as moderate and nationalist, came down in favor of recolonization, in line with Ramadier and the centrists and rightists. In the discussions, the deputies came to blows not once, but several times. From Logoval, quote, the government's aggressive posture prevailed in the parliamentary debate in good part because hardliners occupied the key positions in the French policy-making structure, as they would for much of the war. Though a dozen prime ministers came and went between September 1944 and mid-1950, only two men, Georges Bideau and Robert Schuman, both of them militant on Indochina, presided over the foreign ministry. Likewise, the two most important ambassadors, Henri Bonnet in Washington and René Massili in London, hewed close to the center-right MRP line, that is the Catholic centrist line, on foreign policy in general and on Indochina in particular. The same was true of the socialist Moutet at the Ministry of Overseas France, as well as his successor in November 1947, Paul Coste Fleuret of the MRP, unquote. As they waited for the rains to end, the French in Indochina began looking for a more permanent solution to the provisional and obviously colonial puppet governments they'd been running down in Saigon. They landed, as ever, on Bao Dai. Again from Logoval, quote, Thus came to the fore a rhetorical strategy from which the French would not deviate for the remainder of the war. It was disingenuous in the extreme, an ex post facto justification for a war initiated and fought on other grounds. Paris had no intention of granting the full independence that most every nationalist in Vietnam sought. But as a public rationale, the new approach was a kind of masterstroke, for it bought increased support for French aims in Vietnam and in the international community, most importantly in the United States. It was indeed tailor-made for American audiences. As the astute observer Philippe Devier later said, through this Baudai solution, Paris would use anti-communism to neutralize America's anti-colonialism. An ostensibly nationalist regime would be the means by which the war against the Viet Minh would be redefined for Americans as part of the emerging struggle against communism. And no longer would doves in Washington be able to claim that Ho Chi Minh alone represented legitimate Vietnamese nationalism, unquote. Bao Dai had been popular as an emperor, despite that what he seemed to be most interested in, or at least what he seems to be most interested in in most of the books that I have read, was in women and gambling. He'd studied as a young man in Paris, come back to Vietnam, and instituted some limited reforms within that space that the French allowed him to operate at all before the 1940s, eliminating, for example, the rule where mandarins had to kowtow, touch their foreheads to the floor in front of him, replacing that gesture with a simple bow. 
It looks as though what really turned him to the life of leisure, rather than dignified government, is that the French would not, in the 30s and 40s, actually allow him to govern. That summer, the summer of 1947, as the French reached out to the former emperor, Baudai responded with caution, telling the French that he would ask for exactly what Ho Chi Minh had, reunification of Cochin China with Vietnam proper and full independence. Baudai announced in July a softening of his position, saying that he was neither for nor against the DRVN, in which he had served briefly as a minister, and that he would return to his country if his people wanted him there. The French helped to set up the National Union Front, put together from right nationalists in Cochin China, which began calling for his return. The former emperor would continue softening his position, and the French would continue working on him, until he eventually accepted, but it would not be for a while yet. Paul Muse, in Sociology of a War, points out why the Baodai plan was only ever relevant as a rhetorical cover for the French, and never would have worked as an actual viable government. Quote, the adjustment that faces any national government of the new Vietnam, and he's writing now in the late 1950s, is a fundamental problem. It will not be solved simply by unifying Vietnam under one government, even if that government is competent. In fact, the difficulty is social rather than political. Put the traditional form of administration back in operation, as if exactly nothing had happened. Suppose even, and this is a very optimistic supposition, that the war could be eliminated. Taxes would return. And where would one begin to look for a remedy for the lack of moral balance in the country? A better way of preparing a country for anarchy could not be found. It is a venture without an end. It would finish by creating a resistance if one did not already exist." Unquote. Merely putting the emperor back in power wouldn't do anything to resolve the underlying destabilization of the society that the French colonization had provoked, and towards which the Vietnamese communists were the only political force in the country proposing solutions something that we talked about, man, a while ago at the beginning of this episode. As the rains cleared over the summer and towards the fall, France's top military man in Saigon, General Etienne Valouis, began his preparations for the fall offensive. He hoped to use his advantage in mechanical mobility and firepower to encircle and then destroy large bodies of Viet Minh troops, hopefully capturing members of the leadership in the process. The first of these attempts was Operation Leah, which Bernard Fall describes in Street Without Joy as a, quote, hazardous undertaking in any circumstances, unquote, and, quote, a wild gamble at finishing the war in one single master stroke, unquote. Valoui was cognizant of the parliament's wavering support for war expenditures, and that the government had promised the public that it would reduce the 115,000 men it had in Indochina at the time to 90,000 for 1948. Likewise, a rebellion had broken out in Madagascar, an island the size of Texas, and 15,000 of Valois' troops were shortly to deploy there. Commander-in-Chief Valois committed all of his available reserves to the operation. An airborne group, a group of nine armored infantry and artillery battalions, and a shipborne force of three battalions, along with all of the aircraft that he could scrape together or requisition from the civilian lines. The objective was the Viet Minh's northern base area, a massive thousand-square-mile pocket, with the border fort at Lang San anchoring the eastern point of the triangle, Cao Bang the northern, and Duan Hung on the Red River the southwestern angle. This is the same Viet Bac that we have referred to a number of times as being the essential base area of the Viet Minh both in the 1940s and now. Over a thousand paratroopers landed directly over Viet Minh headquarters in the highlands, having arrived with so little warning that they managed to capture Ho's morning mail, one of his ministers, and several of his German and Japanese military advisors, but not the rest of his staff or the man himself. 
The mechanized group of nine battalions left the fort at Lang Son and sped as fast as the perilous mountain roads allowed along the border to reach Kaobang, hoping to seal off any potential escape into China. It reached Kaobang five days later, having traveled some 75 miles as the bird flies along 150 miles of winding road, and sent a group of Moroccan colonial infantry southwest to aid the paratroopers, who were holding out in the middle of all of Jiap's best troops. The waterborne group motored northwest from Hanoi on the 9th of October, two days after the paratroopers had jumped off, and struggled some 75 miles up on the Red River before unloading and working their way north to meet the mechanized force which was traveling south to meet it. As Fall writes in The Street Without Joy, quote, On October 19, 1947, they met at Chiem Hoa, a full 120 miles inside of rebel territory. The main communist redoubt in Indochina had become a vast pocket, except for the fact that, in that kind of war and that kind of terrain, the term encirclement was of course totally meaningless. Between the towns and key points of the French now garrisoned along the Triangle, there were vast stretches where whole Viet Minh regiments could slip through and did. On November 8th, one month after it had begun, Operation Leo was called off, unquote. The French had captured some papers, a minister, a few Germans and Japanese, and a couple of Jap's precious supply dumps. But they had wasted what Fall reports to be five months of planning, huge amounts of fuel, munitions, and engineering equipment, and casualties lost to the Viet Minh's fierce resistance, all without completing either of Leo's objectives, the capture of Ho and his senior leadership, and the destruction of the main body of Viet Minh troops. The French would, moreover, never come close to capturing either Ho or Jap again. Valois had one last big try in him, though. The subsequent Operation Saint-Cherre, Belt was meant to encircle Viet Minh forces just north of Hanoi, in an area smaller than and south of the massive pocket that Leah had tried to seal off. Again, a huge number of troops and vehicles were committed, clearing a large patch of ground and capturing Viet Minh supply dumps. But Jap, wary as ever of overcommitting in this first stage of the Revolutionary War, had his trips slip through the lines and disappear. The attack ended on 22 December, and the Viet Minh immediately reoccupied the territory that the French had captured. As Fall reports, quote, On the other hand, a much more modest operation, led by two Thai mountaineer battalions on their own home grounds, cleared the Viet Minh for almost five years from the Thai highlands between the Black and Red Rivers, a lesson that, unfortunately, was forgotten in the roar of tank engines and Spitfire fighters with which the French regulars preferred to fight their offensives, unquote. While the French talked up these victories in the press and back in metropolitan France, the situation at the end of 1947 was similar to one which would become very familiar to the Americans two decades later. It appeared to be exactly the same as it had been at the beginning of the year. Even worse, though the French were as yet little aware, the Viet Minh's forces had been much improved by another year's worth of recruitment and training, and the vast reserves of men that the French had siphoned away from the rest of the country to support Leah and Saint-Cher had allowed the Viet Minh's cadres to all the more effectively penetrate the loosely guarded Red and Mekong River deltas. This is a story of the Berlin Airlift, the operation carried out by the Royal Air Force and the United States Air Force to supply two and a quarter million people of Berlin with food, coal, and other necessities of life. In June 1948, all road and rail communications between the Allied zones and the western sectors of Berlin were closed by the Russians. By the 28th of June, the only way into Berlin was by air, 
and the first RAF aircraft started this colossal undertaking. According to many predictions, an impossible one to maintain for any length of time, especially during winter. Aircraft began their ceaseless drone into blockaded Berlin using all available airfields in the western zone. In the first three days, 500 landings were achieved, but with the aid of the United States Air Force, the number of flights rose by October to 600 per day. This is the story of the airlift of the Joint Army-Navy Air Force effort, which is delivering to Berlin by air up to 90% as much freight as went by rail before the Russian blockade. To tell it, Warner Pathé News now rides the airlift with the U.S. Navy. It's one of as many as 900 flights a day, around the clock and in any weather. Approaching Berlin, thick fog closes in. Visibility becomes zero. The cargo must go through. The pilot calls to a radar station at Tempelhof Airport. Here a technician tracking the plane by radar talks the pilot down, right on the airlift split-second schedule. Britain and her allies had won. After nearly 11 months of Cold War, another start is made. The front door to Berlin, shabby through disuse, gets a spring clean as a new mood of conciliation thaws out the old suspicion. The loneliest road in Europe, the 150-yard strip between the British and Soviet zones, waits for zero hour and the first flow of through traffic. Helmstead, the frontier post, till now the dead end of the west supply route to Berlin, loads up for the first journey through the Iron Curtain. 25,000 tons of fuel and food, doubling the record total of a day's airlift, head for Berlin. One minute to midnight, magnesium flares and camera flashlights reveal the scene. Civilian sightseers and 500 world pressmen strain their ears for the first rumble of the traffic, as on the stroke of 12, the barrier goes up and a British jeep leads the race into Berlin. First across is the 1st Parachute Battalion, a detachment of the 7th Armoured Brigade, the Old Desert Rats. After them come the heavy supply convoys and the Joy Riders. So reopens the lifeline into Berlin. After 11 months of siege, the West is again linked with the East. The Autobahn, overgrown with weeds of neglect, is now choked with bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. At Helmstead Station, it's clear the lines for Berlin. It was this railroad that began the dispute that led to the blockade. According to the Russians, the lines and bridges needed repair, and they were closed to the west. This was the front they presented to the outside world to cover their bid to force Britain, France and America out of the German capital. The west's determination to stand firm, plus the weapon of the airlift, beat Soviet tactics and called their bluff. Now, with the normal supply route open again, a new life begins for Berliners. As 1947 turned to 1948, General Etienne Valouy was left with 100,000 troops, more than the 90,000 that he had expected, but not nearly enough to mount any more operations on the scale of the fall offensives. He concentrated what he did have on holding the gains of the previous year, in particular the forts that the French had taken or established during Operation Leo along 150 miles of the Fourth Route Coloniale next to the Chinese border. Even that much was difficult and dangerous. 
The forts could only be supplied by air or by the treacherous colonial route itself, and as Logoval writes, quote, road convoys were repeatedly attacked. On February 28, 1948, for example, a foreign legion company inching its way along the RC4 was ambushed and took 22 dead and 33 wounded, about 40% casualties. A few weeks later, there was another such attack, and then another. By year's end, French forces suffered close to three dozen major ambushes along the RC4 alone. Bac Khan was another case in point. Although the French attack on the town in Operation Lia the previous fall had failed to capture the Viet Minh leadership, French commanders had noisily announced their capture of the seat of Ho's government. Boyard boasted that the tricolor would forever fly over the town. What a difference a year made. Through the first half of 1948, the road to the garrison, covering mostly dangerous mountainous territory from Khao Bang, had been open to military convoys, though at the cost of many French lives lost and weapons captured. In August, Viet Minh forces gained control of the road. Thereafter, the garrison of 300 men and a roughly equal number of civilians had to be resupplied entirely by air. And the enemy kept closing in. French outposts near Bac Khan faced frequent attacks in September and October. One of them claimed the lives of 30 legionnaires and three French officers and wounded 50 more. Bac Khan had no strategic value, but the French would lose face if they ever gave up Ho Chi Minh's former headquarters, so they grimly hung on, unquote. This was the Indochina War in a microcosm. The tactics, the lack of relationship between ends and means, and really the entire war itself. The Viet Minh kept up constant, minor attacks into the Red River Delta around Hanoi, tying down French forces there, disrupting supplies to the far-flung forts and towns, and whittling away at French morale. Cochin China was somewhat more secure, with its distance and the different geographic and cultural terrain making it harder for regular troops and even guerrillas to maintain a large presence there. But it was still dangerous for Frenchmen to travel, and the peaceful colonial life in Saigon was punctuated by assassinations and bombings in broad daylight. As Logoval writes, quote, In retaliation, French agents assassinated Viet Minh suspects and dumped their bodies on street corners as a warning to the insurgents to desist, unquote. While serious infiltration of the Saigon suburbs was more difficult than in the Red River Delta, what the insurgents had, and would have until the 1970s in the South, were the Plain of Reeds, which extended from Saigon's outskirts in an unbroken mass to the Cambodian border, and the Ka Mau Peninsula, occupying nearly the entire southern third of Cochin China below the Mekong. Both areas were swampy and impenetrable to motor vehicles, making them excellent redoubts for the Viet Minh. Meanwhile, a virtual stalemate once again favored Giap rather than the French. General Valois was in perpetual danger of losing his troops, and in any case had few ways to replenish their numbers when the Viet Minh shot them down. By contrast, heavy-handed French incursions into the villages of the Deltas were swelling Jap's ranks, and by the end of 1948, he had some 250,000 men under arms, more than doubling the number of French troops in the country. The French won one political victory in 1948, at least. In June, they'd managed to convince Bao Dai to attend the signing of an accord between High Commissioner Boyard and General Nguyen Van Zuan, head of the French puppet Republic of Cochin China. The agreement set Zhuan up as the head of a new Vietnamese national government. France would recognize Vietnamese independence within the French Union and the Vietnamese right to unify the three parts of the country, while the new national government would cede control of its army, finances, and foreign relations to the French. Bao Dai, somehow having arrived to this meeting without fully understanding the agreement, turned his nose up yet again, that is, to be the head of state, and scooted off to keep gambling on the French Riviera. But it looked good for the French. 
They'd acknowledged a Vietnamese right to independence, the same thing Ho had failed to extract in the March 6 Accords, the Jap had been unable to obtain in Dalat, and that Pham Van Dong had come home without after Fontainebleau. Likewise, with the new national government at least theoretically in control of the whole country, and with the French holding the three major capitals, Hanoi, Saigon, and Hue, there was for the first time a formal native opposition to Ho's DRVN. For all those points, Ho and Jap might have had a legitimate reason to worry, but as Logeval reports, quote, The agreement soon generated more support for the DRV than for the ex-emperor, as the colons in Vietnam immediately denounced Boyart's surrender and said real power was and would remain in French hands, and as Paris leaders dithered over whether to extend formal ratification to the agreement, unquote. Boyart, who had returned to France for the vote, waited for weeks before flying back to Vietnam without ever having obtained it. The radical socialist who had come to Vietnam to make peace and who had been undermined at every point by metropolitan France while presiding over a widening of the war announced in September that he was coming home, whether they wanted him to stay or not. Zuan, meanwhile, as head of the puppet government based out of Saigon, spent his time doing absolutely nothing to unite national opinion and, just in the process of existing, managed to drum up more support for Ho's Democratic Republic, which had not since late 1946 participated in anything that looked like even accommodation with the increasingly hated French. Through 12 months dark with conflict, 1949, like all years, leaves its message for posterity. It was written in Washington by the representatives of 12 nations. It was countersigned across the freedom-loving world by 330 million people. Strength in peace for the prevention of war. That was the message of the Atlantic Pact, the message of the year. The Reds were busy elsewhere too. In China, communism scored its greatest victory since the coup in Czechoslovakia. Troops of Mao Zedong marched into Shanghai unopposed. Within weeks, they were at the gates of Hong Kong. Troops went out from Britain to reinforce the garrison. Hong Kong was determined to stay British. With China almost theirs, Moscow and the 14 men in the Kremlin found 1949 mixing the bitter with the sweet. Though they possessed the world's biggest army and the secret of the atom bomb, they were faced by a united Western world ready to halt the spread of Stalin's empire by force if need be. Events late in 1948 would change the character of the French War until its end. The Chinese communists began winning the series of decisive victories over Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang that would eventually deliver them the country, and the rapidity of their advance made French leadership in Indochina especially desperate to conclude their war quickly before the Maoists could occupy the border and begin lending Ho Chi Minh material aid. The Chinese communist gains likewise lit a fire under Bao Dai, and gave him leverage over the French, who were desperate to set up a more legitimate puppet than Zuan. And in March 1949, Bao Dai signed the Elysee Accords, confirming Vietnam's autonomy within the French Union, and laid out plans for integrating Cochin China into a unified state of Vietnam, with its own army, though equipped and directed by France. France would also control the country's economy and diplomatic relations, meaning that, in effect, it would remain a colony. Understandably, the Elysee Accords hardly fired up the populace in support. For the French, though, the real reason to set up a legitimate-seeming, independent-seeming national government was to secure funding and approval from the Americans, who up to this point had been mightily resistant to direct support, the Marshall Plan being indirect, a clearly colonial endeavor, whatever the left-wing politics of the thing. The Maoist advances in China would likewise change American opinion. 
Despite Washington's better judgment, the French tactic began to work, not so much by swaying opinions in the White House or the State Department, but among the population at large. The CIA, for example, had long been set against the Baudai plan, saying in December of 1947 that any government set up with the emperor at its head would be indelibly tarnished in the eyes of the Vietnamese by its association with France. A year and a month later, in January 1949, just two months before the Élysée Accords that set Baudai up as head of the Vietnamese government, a State Department analysis reported that a new state under the old emperor, quote, might become virtually a military puppet separated from the people and existing only by the presence of French military forces, unquote. If that should happen, and should the Americans get involved, a subsequent memo cautioned, quote, we must then follow blindly down a dead-end alley, expending our limited resources in a fight that would be hopeless, unquote. What became key, as the U.S. government privately doubted getting involved, were Henry Luce's pro-Chinese and pro-Kuomintang inclinations. From Logoval, quote, In 1949, Henry R. Luce's Time and its sister publication, Life, insisted more and more loudly as the year progressed that France was fighting for the West in Indochina and therefore must have robust U.S. support. A great many people heard this message. Time magazine was for many Americans at mid-century more than a magazine. It was a kind of unofficial but authoritative version of America's noble cause in the Cold War. Life, for its part, was read by an astonishing 44.4% of college-educated males. Although few Americans had heard of Luce, they had lapped up the news as filtered through his prism. If the U.S. goes into Asia, Time declared in October 1949, then she will have to go in with both feet, with money and authority, with the will to help Asians build their own strong, free societies, and with the result of preventing them from committing national suicide under the strains of that painful process." Unquote. In that year, 1949, it was Dean Acheson, Truman's Secretary of State, who took the plunge, and decided to support the French effort in Vietnam explicitly. Having put our hand to the plow, we would not look back. Those were Dean Acheson's words, having made the decision to abandon neutrality in Indochina and openly back the French war. As for Dean Acheson himself, let's let Logoval speak one more time here. Quote, Truman chose him because of his loyalty and his qualifications, and his formidable intelligence. But it didn't hurt that Acheson so much looked and sounded the part. He strode forth as the quintessence of the striped pants diplomat with his Seville Row suits, his erect bearing, his astonishing mustache, his manners, his precision, and his dry Anglo wit. He looked more like a British foreign secretary than any British foreign secretary I ever saw, said the longtime New York Times Washington bureau chief James Scotty Reston, who saw a few, unquote. Dean Acheson was a member of that American aristocracy that we talked about a bit in the Iran shows vis-a-vis -vis Kermit Roosevelt and in the first short show on liberal arts. Acheson went to the Groton Prep School and then Yale, joining the Scroll and Key and obtaining election to Phi Beta Kappa. He went to Harvard Law, joined the Navy, clerked for Louis Brandeis, and then joined the coterie of high-powered Washington lawyers that brokered agreements between our government and states overseas, shuffling in and out of each administration according to party. He served as Undersecretary and then Secretary of the Treasury, and then took the number two spot in the State Department, the Undersecretary of State, just before the outbreak of war in 1941. He worked out the Lend-Lease programs that armed the British and the Russians, and sort of created the oil embargo against Japan that helped to push them to attack us and thus push us into the war, behind FDR's back and without his approval. Acheson stayed on at the State Department under George Marshall after the war, and then took over the department in 1949. 
Dean Acheson was a brilliant dude, and probably the man most responsible for the structure of the American-led post-World War II world order. His memoir, typically immodest, is called Present at the Creation. He was also, unfortunately, a serious fan of the British Empire, and seriously suspicious of any nationalist leaders who got too close to the communists. But despite those prejudices, as we saw in the episodes in Iran, he wasn't totally intractable. He was just fine with Mossadegh, for example, at least until he left office in 1952. That broadness of mind, unfortunately, again, did not quite extend to Ho. From Logoval, quote, when a State Department analyst in February 1949 noted the general absence of anti-American propaganda coming out of Viet Minh headquarters and suggested that Ho Chi Minh still hoped for U.S. backing for, or at least non-interference in, his cause, Acheson was unmoved. The question he said some weeks later of whether Ho Chi Minh was as much a nationalist as a commie is irrelevant. All Stalinists in colonial areas are nationalists. Ho, he said, was an outright commie. end of this particular episode. One of our great statesmen, one of the so-called wise men, making an ominous and dangerously naive judgment about Ho and his Viet Minh. The consequences of that judgment will have to wait until next time. This episode, by the by, was almost an hour longer than it is right now, if you can believe that. I had a last section here, on the outline at least, to follow up on that Atchison quote. I wanted to explore the nationalist versus communist question the development of our world foreign policy through the early years of the Cold War and the outbreak of war in Korea, and I wanted in particular to explore exactly what George F. Kennan was thinking about as a kind of through line for the whole period. As soon as I started working on that section, I knew that it was going to be way too big to use to cap off this show, which was already 30,000 words and 50 pages long or so. What I ended up deciding is that I'm going to break Kennan and the rest of it off into its own episode, having nothing or very little to do with our ongoing story of the French in Vietnam. I've got most of it written already, and it'll only take a day or so to finish writing and recording it, so as I do the reading and outline for the next long show over this week, I'll also finish up an interim episode on the early Cold War, George Kennan, Dean Acheson, the fall of China, and all sorts of other really important events that fall somewhat outside of our main story, and that'll give you something to listen to come next Monday. Now in housekeeping terms, I was serious at the top of the show when I said that our numbers are not going up. In fact, it doesn't look like we've really expanded our listenership at all since the third show that Rob and I did last autumn. Six months, and I'm not sure that a single new person has heard SFD since then. I've been working as a Michigan political correspondent, freelancing in Mexico, and applying, getting into, renting a house to live in during, and preparing to move to law school. So apart from making this podcast, I was pretty much hoping that you folks would help me out on the advertising side of things. Just going by the numbers, you have not. So, um, here, towards the end of the run of this thing, maybe give me a hand, huh? Thanks, as always, to the people on Patreon. You don't exactly make SFD possible, but you definitely make it a much easier and more comfortable thing for me to keep up here while I am in Mexico. Share this show, guys. 
please. Next time, well, it's George Kennan. But after that, it's Marshall de Latre, the Korean War, the influx of Chinese arms, the entrance of the Americans, and the sad, ominous road to Dien Bien Phu. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Thank you.